But first, I have to know what flavor is your is your bag. Well, just chill out, man. The, you're putting the cart before the horse. I'm sorry. Okay? The sorry. episode hasn't started yet. <laughs> Let me shake it out. All right, here we go. Well, one take here. All right. First try. Let's knock it out of the park. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Nashville CA, your double weekly, double feature host. Ho- Fuck! <laughs> so close. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Nashville CA, your double feature, double weekly podcast hosted by a guy living in Nashville and a guy living in California. Hi, Josh. How are you? I'm doing well, Sean. How are you today? I'm nervous because I'm currently holding in my hand 16 cold ounces of Power Punch Bang Super Creatine Energy Drink. Power Punch. Why am I why do I have this? Uh-huh. Because of G4 and watching the host talk about it. And I just figured, hey, I wanna fuck with my heart a little more than I already do. Let's <laughs> let's try this. So here we go. My first energy drink in years. <coughs> I coughed so your mom wouldn't hear me open my beer. <laughs> uh I when you held it up to open it, I did see that it is zero calories. I know that makes it worse. Somehow. Yes, that's frightening. <laughs> that shouldn't be. That should not be that way. All right, here we go. Sipping. Uh huh. Tastes all right. Tastes bubbly. We'll see. We'll see what a slow dosage of bang does to my <laughs> podcasting abilities here as we go forward. Uh, you're gonna be uh, so. What's new? With, what's be, new with you, bud? What's new? Oh God, not a whole lot. It's been weird here in uh, Nashville. We're like everybody's lifting restrictions, so I'm now afraid to go back out because there's way more maskless people out and about, and it's just cool with everybody apparently. And I don't want to <laughs> be a part of that because. I'm st- I'm still afraid. I don't like it. I hear you. Uh, they've lifted restrictions here in middle of this month, mm-hmm. mid February, and uh, it's supposed to be if you're unvaccinated, you're su- you're still supposed to mask. But mm-hmm. I doubt that's happening. Right. Um. But I've kind of. It, it just depends where I'm at. Like if I'm at my local bar hanging out with my friends, I'm totally fine without one but grocery store i'm throwing one on i'm still seeing like two-thirds of people in grocery stores and stuff masked Mm -hmm. so it might might just be a thing where people are gonna be slow to change but so i'm trying to really put covid in the back of my mind at this point now so this is what i've noticed and you know i am I also am being very, like, I guess, hypocritical and selective about where I go and when I have my mask on and stuff. You uh, gotta live. Yes. Um, but the, the Publix, uh, do, do you have a, do you have a Publix? No, store? I listen to a, a radio show based in Miami. So that's okay. my only reason I even know what Publix is. Okay. Publix is our kind of like our upper scale, uh, grocery store it's still not whole foods or sprouts which is like the expensive places but we have sprouts in whole foods okay but everything from Publix on up you are more likely to see a mask in than 
Kroger. Uh, the Aldi actually has been fairly good. I, I'm I'm pretty impressed. We don't have Aldi either. I hear those are good stores. Aldi is fantastic. Uh, like the, their selection isn't huge, but you can buy like two whole chickens for eleven bucks, um, which I do every couple of weeks because I make those roast chickens with potatoes and carrots and all that good stuff. Um, and it, it's they got a lot of Trader Joe's things in there under slightly different names as well, which is like the the secret hack. Trader Joe's. I, I like it, but every time I go there, I have to work up my mental fortifications. I, something about it stresses me out. More so than Safeway or other grocery stores. It's like Trader Joe's just has tighter aisles, and people, I don't know, people just meander around and block aisles, and it just stresses me out more. Yeah, there's no good like traffic flow pattern in a, in a Trader Joe's. No, especially not in the parking lot. Yep. It seems universally... Trader Joe's parking lots are messed up. Yes. Uh, they did open one here in an old building that used to have like a Steinmart or maybe a Tuesday morning, something along those lines. Um, and it already had a very large parking lot. So that's the one I try to go to um, because the other one over in Green Hills is a absolute nightmare. I've actually parked at the mall and walked over to Trader Joe's. Uh, I also did mall stuff, but then like walked to Trader Joe's and just walked back. So I didn't have to park twice. Do you know what else is a nightmare in Green Hills? What's that? The movie Seven Samurai. Wow. Wait, how does. Okay, I get it. There's some Green Hills. And it's a nightmare for those farmers. It is. It is horrible for those farmers. Is, so it, we're talking about Seven Samurai by Akira, Akira Kurosawa <laughs> as our first movie. That's called a transition, man. That's. I love it. Uh, the bang is leaving my system. Hold you, you on. You need more bang. Josh, I've never seen Seven Samurai. You have. After yeah. this, we're talking about Master and Commander, which I have seen many times yeah. and you had never seen. So we didn't really mean to pick period pieces. This was more just you and I wanting to make the other see a movie that we like. Yes, and I wound up, I think maybe at the end, I will kind of call out some of the similarities or maybe between the movies or something. Um, but these movies wound up having a lot of similarities, too, uh, which I thought was really interesting. Um, That's interesting because I did not make a single mental note of like one similarity. I, 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 I think I mentally forgot to compare these movies. <laughs> So I, I'm excited for you to enlighten me as we go forward. <laughs> I love it. These exist as like completely separate entities, and I watched them within 24 hours of each other. Yeah. I don't know. So not only have I seen Seven Samurai several times, um, my the upper part of my sleeve tattoo is Seven Samurai. The banner? It's I've got the banner and then the silhouette when they're all walking down the hill to go to the village. Um, it's based, it's based on that. He had to like re rearrange it a little bit because I also have, um, what's his name? Tetsuya Nakadai from Harakiri who plays one of the samurai in this that is not interested when they first go to town and they like try to catch eyes with all the samurai to like hire them. He's one of them that's disinterested, but, uh, so the, the whole sleeve is samurai. 
is is the the point here. So you're saying you like this movie? I like this movie. I like this movie very much. <laughs> yes. Um. So this I, was my first. Well, all right. This is my second samurai movie. I would say after the last samurai. What do you think of that movie? I've never seen it. A lot of people attach the white savior complex to it, but mm -hmm. that's not the point of the movie at all. It's like he's an alcoholic fuck up and then like the samurai lifestyle saves him. Okay. But people like to, in their minds, I don't know, Tom Cruise goes and teaches the samurai warriors how to fight is what people think of that movie. But I, th I really like it. I think it's really good. Yeah, I have not seen it. Have you seen any other Kurosawa movies? No. Okay. Because he did things other than samurai <laughs> movies as well. Uh, <laughs> You're just checking. Quick, a, quick, a quick Google. I've never seen Rashomon. Samurai movie? Uh, no, 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 no. This was my, my first jaunt. With okay. Mr. Kurosawa. Okay, so you jumped into the deep end. You jumped into, at the time, the most expensive Japanese movie ever made. Uh, it almost wrecked the studio. <laughs> Toho? Yes. Really? Yes. Wow. Uh, because they had like a very kind of strict production um, production line going on. And Kurosawa was like, hey, I'm going to make this epic. And he just kept shooting like he knew what he wanted and yeah. he shot so much that, and you can see it in the movie. There are scenes where you can see the actor's breath. It's because they started like in spring and went clear through like the rainy season and into winter. <laughs> and so there were apparently like clearing snow out of the background and mushing it into the mud that you see uh, that takes up most of the village stuff. Oh, <laughs> So yeah. this was a miserable shoot. Yes, it was miserable. People were hospitalized, which is not surprising, given what you see. Um, Tashiro Mifune, who plays um, Kikuchio uh, in the movie, uh, the absolute madman in the movie. Real standout for me. Yes. He wound up uh, in the hospital for a couple weeks after the shoot was done just from sheer exhaustion, which is like... Totally not surprising. You see not only what everybody went through, but his performance in particular. It's so physical. He's so active and he's covered in mud for like the last 30, 40 minutes of the movie, uh, which had to just be miserable. That was months of shooting. Even when he's just giving dialogue, he's like sprinting oh. and screaming <laughs> and jumping back and forth and animating. It's. It, it's a crazed performance. This is one of the crazier performances I've seen in a while. Yes, it is. Um, it's the thing that makes it stand out. It's one of the things that makes it stand out from um, a lot of the other, I believe they're called Chambara, uh, which are period samurai films, period uh, films from Japan. Um, and it in this era of filmmaking, they were normally very respectful and very choreographed with their uh, fighting. Like it looked more like dance and it was more kind of ritualized. And Kurosawa clearly wanted to make something 
that at the time was more like Saving Private Ryan, <laughs> as far as a lot of the violence goes. Wow. The, the action in this movie doesn't, it, it feels terrifying, mm-hmm. especially with the horses. Yes. Because I'm always worried about horses on film. Mm-hmm. I feel like horses on film have had uh, a troubled track record. Yes. And, uh, but seeing these horses, guys are falling off these horses, and then there's another horse running right behind him. Mm-hmm. So, like, the stuntman is almost trampled to death, and this is just, like, a little throwaway shot of a guy falling off a horse. Uh, and a guy gets dragged behind a horse, like, during a stampede? Ah, that's, it, it's utterly insane. I, they're firing real arrows part of the time, like, just straight up shooting people. Uh, that's insane. <laughs> the, um... Everybody running around with swords and pikes and spears for the last 40 minutes of this movie, like, and, and hitting each other with them. And you see, like, when they knock down, uh, towards the beginning, the violence is more um, of that ritualized, very stylized kind. And then it devolves into this, like, animalistic, uh, where people are crawling on the ground and just getting stabbed by dozens of spears. <laughs> and it's... It's really scary and effective. Yeah, getting poked by bamboo, mm-hmm. even lightly, bamboo sharpened to a point like that, that that's not a picnic for anyone. No. These guys, and they're wearing, uh, like, some armor, some of them, but they seem to aim for the parts where they don't have armor, which, <laughs> which is just, I mean, it works, but it's also mean. As you do. Yeah. So... You want to go through the movie a little bit here? Yeah, let's do it. So, uh, and did you recognize this storyline? That's like right off the bat. Three Amigos. Okay, yes. Three Amigos. I've never seen Magnificent Seven, but I, Three Amigos I knew was a riff off Magnificent Seven, which, which is a riff off of this. Yes. What about the the Pixar film A Bug's Life? Uh Oh, whoa. Uh-huh. <laughs> whoa. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The Grasshoppers. Yep. I haven't seen A Bug's Life in a long time. I remember like I watched it the night before I think 6th grade camp and I had so much anxiety about going to 6th grade oh, camp yeah. and whether or not I was going to be able to fall asleep at night. Like, that was my main stressor. It was just, like, nighttime. Am I going to be stressed out? Am I going to be told, like, a scary ghost story that's then going to, like, freak me out? So, I remember watching A Bug's Life and trying to, like, use it as my distractor. Sixth grade camp was fun. It (laughs) It turned out fine, as everything does in my life where I worry about things far more than I ever should. But yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, A Bug's Life was, depending on how they were scanned, in which order they were scanned, either my first or second DVD I ever purchased. The bang is tart. How's that treating you? (laughs) It's, I was like the fourth sip and suddenly the, the artificialness of the sweetener or whatever, Mm -hmm. it sat on my tongue and it wouldn't go away. Uh, it's good. 
you kind of look like uh, was that a commercial with the guy and he eats the old guy and he eats the lemon and he, then he, they take out his teeth and his whole face puckers. Oh, I was thinking of bitter beer face. Oh yes, that's what it's bitter beer face. Yeah, you've got bitter bang face. <laughs> 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 so the story of this movie, if you've seen a Bug's Life, uh, it's that's pretty much the kids' version of this. Uh, some bandits ride up to a village. They decide not to pillage the village because they just pillaged the village recently. Uh, and they're going to wait until their next crop uh, is ripe, which is barley. So they stole, stole. And then there will be blood spillage. Spillage in the village when they pillage. When they pillage. <laughs> uh, I got, I got, I don't have another one. Uh, the I like um, that this beginning part moves so quickly and there's definite points in here where they like they're just like yeah you get the plot it's fine and it moves from the uh, the bandits right up one of the villagers overhears them talking and goes back to the village you don't see him like running through the town or anything and telling anybody you just see everyone in the town sitting in the town square crying with their heads down because they already went through this. Uh, one man uh, lost his wife. They they kidnapped her in the last raid. Um, several of them are going near hungry because the bandits took all the rice. So they're just looking at they have to pay taxes and they have to pay these bandits, and they've, they're they going to have nothing left. This movie moves quick, but it's the slowest thing in the world at the same time. Yes. <laughs> I, it's so hard. I don't understand how this is three and a half hours long. Right. Because you're right, it cuts through a lot of the BS and just gets to it. But then, checking my watch, I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> 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 the, there's an hour left and the final assault has begun and so there's just like an hour long battle yes. at the end you know yeah so the notes are gonna uh, like go very quickly at the end there right yeah so and again I like this like everyone's crying let's go to the old man old man says let's fight mm -hmm. so let's go to town and let's find some samurai and it's like bing bang boom story done Perfect little plot structure done. Let's go find our characters. And there's so much introduced in the little bits of dialogue. We find out that uh, the man who lost his wife, we find out that they're almost reduced to eating millet, which I guess is a, a lesser grain. Sean, you're a baker. I don't know why you know about there's millet. such... Yeah, millet is... Uh, I believe it's an ancient grain, but it's... It's like a healthy grain. I know people use it in bird feeders, but I've made bread with millet flour before. Okay. And it's good and nutritious. So I, I don't know why they look down on millet as much as they do. There's like big rice really got their hands on this movie <laughs> script. Uh, we find out that the farmers are concerned for their wives and daughters if samurai do come to the town that the samurai can't keep their hands off the women and the women can't keep their hands off the samurai. They're worried about it going both ways. Um, and, oh, there's one other element that gets introduced here that I don't, that I made note of later. Um, but 
yeah, it's like it's super efficient because this is all just bing, bang, boom. And then we're in the big city, which is Samurai Town, apparently. There's just Samurai yeah. wandering the streets. I love the little montage where we're just people watching from a crowd. Mm-hmm. And you just get all the cuts of the different Samurai faces as they're walking to and fro in town. And it's like the audience, we are trying to gauge up which guy we think would be a good pick and mm-hmm. which guy seems like a joke. Yeah, the the farmers are debating. There's one guy who just wants to go and try to bargain with the bandits. Uh, and then we have another one who says, if we bargain with them, you know, what are they going to take next? Like, you don't bargain with the terrorist kind of thing. And so there's also this push and pull of like, well, if we get a hungry samurai because all we can pay is rice is he going to be strong enough to fight a battle <laughs> and so they're like trying to weigh and it's like the those cuts good lord they it's half of the farmers looking and then people cross in front of the lens and it cuts on the crosses it, it feels very modern for 1954 what 54 okay mm-hmm. yeah so the idea as far as like film and the idea of montage has been that started in what like the twenties or thirties. I don't. I got as a whole as, like, film history and like film editing. I've, I've got so an Eisenstein book down there. I haven't read it, but I've got it. We're about ten to twenty years into the film editing era when the, with this movie, right? With uh, the God, I'm going to sound like a moron if it happened in like 1910. Uh, but, but yes, I mean, was it like Battleship Potemkin? Was that's montage, right? Yes, that is montage. And, uh, but still in the 50s and 60s, um, you still had Alfred Hitchcock going on television and explaining to people, like, and he did the, the test where you cut to a man's face and then you cut to a baby and you think that he's a kindly man who's looking fondly upon this baby and then you cut back to the man and then you cut to a woman in a bikini and he looks like a lascivious old man. Uh, he looks like an old perv and it's the same, it's the same shot of the man, you know, the, the edit makes all the difference in the world. Basically. He did that experiment on TV. I believe it was TV. I just watched it again. Um, it might've been like a French channel or something. But uh, yeah, it's it's really fun to to find his. So he his just talks. he just enjoyed fucking with people. Oh, Hitchcock! Hitchcock definitely enjoyed fucking with people. <laughs> that was <laughs> his uh, raison d'être, I would say. Mm, well said, too. That was beautiful French. Thank you. I can't say um, uh, Ryan Ryan Felipe Felipe Philippi. How do you say it? I don't. I I vaguely know who you're talking about. Okay, I got, actor. I got criticized on the on the um, the book club a couple weeks ago. I think for saying Ryan Felipe or Philip, whatever I did. Uh, you've gotten on me for my Spanish, which is horrendous. I I say J's well, I mean, when they're supposed did, to be H's. You did order a, a quesadilla. <laughs> George, one quesadilla, please. <laughs> Oh, my mom one time was like, you got to go to George's. They make the best chicken taco soup. (laughs) 
This is like oh eight years ago. I'm like, Mom, George's? That's a weird name. Mom, you know that's Jorge. Come on now. You've been in San Diego like 50 uh-huh. years. Uh, my dad, every time he can get away with it, uh, and which is a lot because he, he loves going to Mexican restaurants and they're, they live, they spend half the year in Texas. Um, he will ask if there's a Jesus on the premises and then he gets his picture taken with him and he sends it to me and he says, look, buddy, I finally found Jesus. Yikes. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> That's yeah. like a weird kind of cultural appropriation that I don't even want to dig into. Yeah, there's layers. There's some. There's layers to how wrong that is. You know what else is wrong? Kidnapping children when you're caught stealing from a hut. Oh my gosh! And the kid has been with the kidnapper for a whole day. He can barely Just cry. Out. He's so hungry. He can barely cry at this point. Um. I did not know what was going on when the guy starts shaving his head. Yes. Especially because cutting off the ponytail in samurai culture, that's a very big deal, correct? Yes, yes. So this man cutting off his own hair was really sacrificing a lot in order to disguise himself as a monk? Well... What's what's your read here? So part of... The the history that goes into this is these are all technically not samurai anymore. All of these men are ronin. They are masterless samurai who are wandering the streets. They're basically guns for hire or swords for hire at this point. Um, they all came from probably serving nobility at different levels uh, and have lost different battles. And their their keepers have died. And so now they are masterless. So we should have watched Ronan with this movie. We should have watched Ronan with this movie. I almost watched Ronan the other night because we were talking about it. I know we talked about pairing it up recently. I don't know. Do you think there's a lot to talk about with Ronan though? Because what is there? It's like, oh, the car chase is cool, and they had a <laughs> cameraman on the hood of the car, and um, the plot it's kind of just there, and people backstab each other. It, De Niro and uh, that, like that's it. I don't know yeah. what else I would say about it. I remember it. Uh, it made me happy because I wanted to watch something else that was kind of like Heat, um, and it gave me kind of like Heat vibes. I dig it, man, and like the whole I just ambushed you with a cup of coffee and all that mm-hmm. stuff. It it's cool. I my friend introduced me to that one in high school. And I remember we had a substitute teacher in math class my senior year. A couple of us were just hanging out, talking with this guy, talking movies or something. I remember this was one of the dumbest movie conversations I've ever been in. Because he's like, well, what do you guys think are some great movies? And I was like, Ronan. And he's like, Ronan? One of, like, the great movies? That's ridiculous. So I was like, what do you think is one? And he's like, Hoosiers. And I didn't know wow. at the time, but now I'm like, Hoosiers? As, like, one of the all-time great movies? Come on, bud. Come on. I mean... Bunch of white guys passing a basketball around in a circle? As a, as a former Hoosier <laughs> myself, I have to I know, say... I can, I can feel the anger building. Uh... 
but you know what? I still haven't seen Rudy, so I, I'm I'm a hypocrite on this one. All right, Hoosiers and Rudy, the ultimate Indiana episode, <laughs> sometime soon. It's going to get real corny. So uh, Indiana's known for corn. That's where the corny thing came. Sorry, I'm aware of your sense of humor. Okay, thank you. Uh, so yes, Cam. Kambi, Kambi, I do not know how to say his name. Um, Takashi Shimura uh, is the actor who plays him, who was in a bunch of Kurosawa films, um, who plays the lead of Samurai, who does this fake out for the the thief uh, hiding in the barn with the, the little kid. Um, and I loved this guy's performance. He's, Sorry to interrupt you there. He's so good. He's so grounded. And this was one of the things I noticed between the two movies. I was just going to say, do you get a Jack Aubrey vibe? Yes, I do. Guy? I do. Yeah. Now that I think about it. Yep. It's, it's that leader that you absolutely like you desire to follow this person. Mm-hmm. Uh, once he finds out that the farmers are in trouble, this guy is such a good-hearted individual that he's not in it for the riches. He will literally do this because he feels like it's the right thing to do. And he helps the samurai or he helps the farmers gather the other samurai and he becomes the de facto leader and just, and he, he smiles at everybody, but he's serious when he needs to be, but his smile is so good. It is. And it's, just uh you want to please this guy mm-hmm. i want i want this man's approval i want to like be this man's disciple um and uh, uh lost that train of thought but you absolutely see why after he does this um the the sabotage with this thief uh and he has basically lowered himself in stature, right? He's put on a monk's robes. He's cut off all of his hair. Everything that signifies him as a samurai is gone just to get this job done. Like, because he wants to rescue this kid. Um, You absolutely see why immediately afterwards, this young guy comes up to him and says, I'm going to be your disciple. I don't care what you say. I'm going to follow you wherever you go until you train me. I like, uh, moving on to this young guy now, mm-hmm. I think this movie does a great job of each of these characters having a type. Mm-hmm. They're, they're they're real specific to who they are, and so you get this young guy who's seeking a master, a mentor. You have the old man who's wise and a leader. You have the rage-filled young drunk guy. You know, it's it's very easy to identify these characters. Mm-hmm. The rage-filled young drunk guy is uh, Tashiro Mifune, Kikuchio, um, who we meet somewhere along here, who has the biggest samurai sword I've ever seen. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's so big. It, yeah. He looks like the poster child for anime at this point. Like, it, it might as well be like, what is it, the, the buster sword from a Final Fantasy game or something. Right, that's a good call. Kikuchiya, uh, he has... Japanese sounds wonderful when growled, and this guy has a wonderful growl. So when he's really giving it his all and coming from down here with, with his lines and screaming at people, man, it's cool. 
And he's so, uh, he is, he's animalistic. And I love when he, in a little bit, when he riles up the townspeople, like once they gather all the samurai and the townspeople are scared to come out and meet them, uh, he sounds the alarm like the bandits are coming and all the townspeople run and they're like, where are our samurai? We need him to help us now. And he starts making fun of them. And he like does these big faces. And finally, all the other samurai um, see kind of his worth in like these little pockets. Uh, and it's so it's so good. I made the note that uh, Toshiro Mifune is Nicolas Cage in this movie. Like he's giving a Nicolas Cage okay. kind of yeah. performance. Yeah, 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 for sure. Where it's like it's just got this big energy the whole time and he's he's like playing to the back row the whole time you never know what's gonna happen either this guy's unpredictable and i think the best way an actor can be sometimes yes and some of the things he does like um he turns around and kicks the dirt like like he's a dog or a chicken or something yeah, or he throws throws big rocks at the ground or into the stream when he gets mad. Yes. Just lifts a boulder and th- chucks it down like a child. Yes. But he also clearly wants uh, the approval of the other samurai. Like, when they make fun of him, it hurts his feelings. And later on, when people start getting hurt, he's the one who has the biggest emotional reaction to it. So, he... He's just this like larger than life personality who wants to be a samurai so badly, and he has forged papers. We find out that his family tree that signifies him as a samurai claims that he's 13 years old. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot. There's a lot more jokes. That was one of the good ones. Uh There's a lot more jokes than I would have anticipated in this movie. Yes, I can see that. A lot of silliness, a lot of um, pratfalls, and a physical comedy, and kind of vaudeville stuff. Especially from the farmers. Like, the farmers are really made to look kind of low, um, especially in that first section, which is kind of called the No Samurai section, where there are... It, they're not even staying in an inn. They're like staying in a stable <laughs> with some other drunk was, guys. Yeah, I was curious where they just decided to hang out. Oh, God, these drunk guys, <laughs> they, the dudes with the beards. That, yes. Oh, every, you know, I, these characters work on me so well, like a, the sniveling asshole bully character mm-hmm. that you get. Oh, this reminds me of like the characters, the bully and his sidekick in. um a Christmas story, but oh, yeah, I yeah. hate characters like these and they work so well on me because uh-huh. these guys are the worst. And they're, uh, they mock everybody and then they're dismissive too. Like it's the kind of thing that when someone talks back to them, they're like, eh, whatever. <laughs> and it's even more frustrating. Um, yes. And they're kind of the Greek chorus for this whole first part just constantly ridiculing the farmers on like, you're never going to get any samurai. Then when they do start getting samurai, they're like, these samurai aren't any good. (laughs) So (laughs) they're such assholes. Just shouting them down at every turn and constantly the mild threat of violence. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And I think 
all of the people there besides the farmers are always a little bit drunk too. Like that seems to be a theme. Oh yeah. The sake is getting hit hard in that town. Yes. Uh, I would like to know like what town it's supposed to be. Um, <laughs> because like I said, here I made the note again, it's samurai town. There's samurai action everywhere. <laughs> There's one dude yeah. out chopping wood. Uh, Two of them are he having... really chops wood hard. Yes, he's great at chopping wood. Have you chopped wood? I have chopped wood. Uh, growing up in Indiana, we had an, a big fireplace, and like in the winter, you'd have to go out and chop wood. A couple years, uh, I think when I was like seventeen, we got a wood splitter, which changed changed everything. So your wood would get delivered in whole logs, cut up into sections. By delivered. Do you mean we would go in our 76 Ford pickup truck to somebody else's farm where they had just knocked down a tree and just load up a bunch of shit and take it back? Because <laughs> yes, that's what we would because get. Because I didn't think you were pulling wood off of your property. So I figured no. it had to get onto your property one way or another. Yes, so but I it, gotcha. it wasn't like, I mean, this was like someone else's deadfall that right. we would buy off of them or if they had too much, we would just take or whatever. My dad would, my dad worked. Um, on other people's farms a lot. We didn't have a farm. I say just he worked on people's farms a lot in trade for things like firewood, um, fresh meat, fresh milk, stuff like that. That's cool. Well, chopping firewood is one of those manly things that I would like to do, but have never done. Uh, I f- I feel like you'd lop- be good. I'd probably cut it. I feel like you'd be good. You're you're. I don't know. I have bad depth perception. And you're wearing flannel right now, Sean. You <laughs> no, I'd be. I could chop some wood. It would take me a while though, because there's a real art to it, and I think unless you know that art, you can fuck it up really easily. Yes, uh, and you can hit yourself in the leg, <laughs> right in the shin, pretty quickly. Do, do you remember? This was about 15 years ago. The Jacksonville Jaguars, the NFL team, the coach decided that like they were chopping away at victories and chopping away. And so he put a log with an axe in the locker room. Okay. And the Jaguars punter hit himself in the leg, (laughs) cut himself bad enough to put himself on the injured reserve list, and he was out for the season. Oh, my God. That is amazing. That's... That's horrifying, but it's, it's just fo- that's just football, man. You you chop away, you lose a leg. That's just that's the game. Oh god, um, I hated football coaches. God damn. Yes, <laughs> uh, it's funny. It made me think of um, my grandma always had a Reader's Digest when I was growing up. Did you ever did you ever peruse a Reader's Digest? They got. I remember my grandma telling me an article that made her cry which was a little boy cut a worm in half and somebody asked him why he did that. And he said, because I wanted it to have a friend. Oh my God. That's a good one. That is good. Uh, (laughs) I remember an article about a guy who was, um, and these seemingly were all over. I don't hear these stories anymore. Right. But a guy who was out chopping wood with a chainsaw and it, it kicked back and he hit himself in the neck with it. Yeah. And then passed out and woke up and didn't realize like the severity of his wound and then went and got help. Uh, And it's just this, it's a whole 
It's a whole thing. And I remember reading this and I'm like, eight? <laughs> like, why, am, why the <laughs> hell am I reading this? And I tell my mom about it and she tells me about a kid, I don't know, and I thought this was made up. I thought this one was an urban legend. A kid who got his arm pulled off in a thresher, I believe. Um, yeah. And then went and called for his, he couldn't get emergency services. He called his aunt or something, but he went and stood in the tub in the house. So he wouldn't get blood all over the house. This was the thought process this young man had. Uh, and farmers I, are raised different, man. I thought, I thought that it was bullshit. This like for years until I heard on a podcast, they were like, Oh, here's a follow up on that kid who had his arm ripped off in the thresher and stood in the tub. And I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. There's like the farmer who got his arm in a thresher and then had to cut his arm off with a pen knife. Yes. Uh, yep. Farmers, man, they're they're a different breed. Respect to all my potato farmers out there. Much love. J- Big ups. Big ups, potato farmers. <laughs> uh, oh, someone steals some rice. Uh, we're testing samurai. I like that they test the samurai by trying to hit them in the head with a log yes um uh i was gonna look this up let me see if i can find it there was a book that i read years ago um and it was my first exposure to um uh, Seven Samurai or Samurai stuff in general. I read this maybe in early middle school and it was a story about this kid who is um, looking for a, a father. Like his mother is dating around and he's trying to figure out ways to test all the, the guys and he compares his testing of the father figures to this test that the samurai put each other through uh, and that has always stuck with me. And led me to seek out the movie very early. I once held up one of my sister's boyfriends. I was about 12 or 13. So this guy was probably 20. And I went to the bottom of the driveway with my friend. And we had our BB guns. And we made him (laughs) give us his wallet before he was allowed on the property. But then he never asked for it back, and so I just, like, put it somewhere random in the house and just forgot about it. And then he, like, left the next day and then had to call my sister and make, uh, by the way, your brother stole my wallet, and I don't... (laughs) (laughs) So, was this your way of testing if he was going to be a a good, uh, a good... Yeah, well, I figured, like... As the little brother, it was my job to be a shit. Mm -hmm. And then if the guy was cool he would stick around or be patient or you know not be an asshole to me but from my understanding in most situations you thought it was your job to be a shit is this (laughs) okay the home alone syndrome yes yeah (laughs) (laughs) i was Uh, a real i was a real kevin McAllister. um what did you think about the, the the two samurai who have the mock battle I was going to ask you about this. Yeah. Okay. I I loved it because it starts with the bamboo. Uh-huh. And then um it's you know the idea of pride and honor is something that kind of evades me as a 
man in the modern day from mm-hmm. California. I don't I I kind of think I'm a piece of shit, so I don't really <laughs> I understand that idea of like clinging to your pride or whatever. Yes. But when that guy tries to claim that it was a draw, a, a samurai cannot have that, right. I guess. Right. So I thought it was awesome and I thought it was really interesting that they both went for the exact same move again. Mm-hmm. Like both trying to prove to each other that no, no, no. If we did this for real, that exact same thing, I would have won. Right. Um, but who is this actor? Who or who is this samurai? What's this character? Because I really liked him. He's like the baddest ass of all of them. This is the guy that later runs into the dark forest and grabs a musket by himself. That's um, Kuzo, played by Seiji uh, Miyaguchi, who was in... He was in a bunch of Kurosawa films. I recognize him from um, Kurosawa films and Ozu. He was in Throne of Blood, which I just watched. Um, Oh, he's in Kwaidan, which is amazing uh, as well. But is he in Tokyo Story? I don't know if he's in Tokyo Story. Um, But uh, yeah, this guy... Once again, you've got another type here, right? You've got your like, rose, and um, I can't hear you. Total stoic. This guy is—he's so lethal, and he doesn't brag about it ever. Oh no, Sean, where are you? Oh no, you left. Come back, Sean. Come back. Hi. So. You started to your video slowed down to a freeze. Mm-hmm. It was like someone was turning off the internet faucet very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> so your video froze first, and then I could hear you. And then you, and then you're, uh, and then uh, everything froze. <laughs> and then after that, I then got all of my disconnection notices oh. that my computer, my internet crashed. Uh, but we're back. Sorry about that. I I lost all of my rhythm, but the bang is flowing now. I definitely am <laughs> you can aware feel the bang. of it. The, I'm trying to type, and it's uh my my fingers are kind of bouncing off the keys. <laughs> uh, okay, so where were we? We were talking about the end of Master and Commander, right? Yep. Uh, and then thank you for joining us this week. Yeah, you got anything to plug? Yeah, there we go. Um, I'll plug a sword into a guy who challenges my honor. I think that's where we left off, right? So, in both this and the the earlier battle with the the thief um, who's got the hostage, when the bad guy dies, he dies in slow motion. Also silently. There's no holy sound of his body falling. Yes. Which made it feel very surreal yeah. to me. There's something very, like, it's it's kind of emotionally heavy. Um, and a lot of these samurai movies, and Kurosawa even later, would do the, the you do a cut and then the big blood spray, and there's like a that goes along with it. Um, but this one, there's none of that. It's just people slowly falling over and dying in the dirt. Is there any blood in this movie? I don't think so. I'm not remembering like a single wound 
Yeah. That was bleeding. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of people getting like slapped with swords and then falling down, um, which is. Yeah, this movie does make sword death look a little bit quick and painless. Yes. Which I don't think if you got stabbed in your kidney, you would just <laughs> immediately go down and just that's the end. Uh, also, a guy gets shot kind of in the the lower right quadrant of his ribs and just immediately falls over dead, which I don't think you would. You'd be in great pain, but I don't think it's well, that's an immediate death. I, I think wait an hour and we'll talk about what happens when that happens. Oh, OK, good. Th- that'll come up. You get you, you get what I'm putting down. I, I do. I see. I see what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have all but one samurai. They've the, the leader said that they would need seven guys um, to guard the, the town correctly. Um, which is where the titular seven samurai, he says it, he says the seven samurai. Um, so the last possibility that they bring in is Kikuchio. And he's drunk when they bring him in. They do the test where someone hides behind the door and is going to bonk him on the head. And they just bonk him on the head and knock him down. <laughs> yeah, he just gets straight up bonked. Yep. And he can't even figure out who bonked him yeah. for a minute. Yeah, he's he just wants to fight everybody. And this the, is a fun little chase the, between uh, him and the young samurai apprentice who steals as they his run sword. around this hut. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> over the fence, around the fence. Uh-huh. He at one point goes through the wall. He uh, picks up part of the fence and threatens to hit the guy with it. You know, one thing that Kurosawa does, I, I can't remember if it's in this scene specifically, but he definitely does it later. There's some wonderful character movement where the camera's in the exterior of a building mm-hmm. and you see the characters running through the windows and then the cam- and then they run outside yes. and then the camera keeps following them in a couple there's a couple really cool tracking shots in this movie. Yes. And all of the the camera work combined with the blocking looks really elegant and efficient, but it's mostly the blocking because the camera it's not mobile at this time, right? It's 1954. Like it's still a a big, heavy camera. We're not that far from like shooting in studios all the time. So to do this out in the wild is kind of insane. He, he built the village. Like the village was totally built out in the wilds in this Valley. Okay. That's impressive. I, I wasn't, I wasn't sure because later on what they do to this landscape, (laughs) it's really really cool this movie has one of the best senses of location that i've seen in a while where Mm -hmm. they show you the east the west the hills to the north they show you the barley field that is going to be flooded later um this is it's like a, a a military tactician's dream of a movie yes where like the whole focus of it is just military movements and defense and training this movie becomes honestly like an rpg as well as those like or uh, rts so you know you got your troops and then you have your peasants and when you gain experience you put the peasants and you train them and so now your Mm -hmm. peasants have spears and they have some fighting spirit and then you have your samurai and then you move your pieces around you put up your defensive barriers the computer attacks you this this movie was like a video game movie uh-huh. way before it's time. And it 
constantly goes back in it, not in a like obnoxious or redundant way, because uh, just like the samurai test, right? We see them do the samurai test with a couple different people um, with different outcomes, but we skip the part where the farmers explain their plight or where the lead samurai explains their plight. We just jump to the samurais making their decision if they've passed the test. And I thought that was really cool. The same thing with the map. We see them reference this map repeatedly, but it's always for different reasons and in different locales. And we're always getting new information when they do it. And it's like they show us the whole map when they're in the center of town. Then they go to each location and we see the layout of where the battle is going to take place on that side or what they're going to do. Uh, what is it all along the, the, the back of the village? They build a, a big fence. Um, they build moats and um, put pikes into the ground so you can't go around the moats. And I thought it was cool just to see that they first used the horse with the, the trowel or whatever behind mm-hmm. it to dig up the land. Then they scoop that out to redirect the stream. Mm-hmm. To then, and it's it's a moat, but then it has all those bamboo spikes on the side, and it's just like a death funnel. Yes, where if you want to get in this way, you have to go the long way. It's not like you're just running across a few feet of water. You have to go down a thirty foot channel. Yeah, of waist high water where you're so vulnerable. It's just it. It's I wasn't really expecting. I knew that's what this movie was. Was the three amigos. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I realized how, um, what's the word when you, you, you really pay attention to detail and you go like point by point and really break it down. Uh, what, whatever that word is, yeah. that's what this movie is. Yeah, it is very like, we know the tactics that they're supposed to use. It's kind of like a heist film when they explain how the heist is supposed to work. And then you either see things work out or not work out as the movie goes on. Uh, which is, I feel like, a lot of what we get through here. I love the moment where we take a break, though, with the the young samurai who's lying down in a field of flowers mm-hmm. underneath that tree. That's that looks like an amazing place to do psychedelics. Just saying, <laughs> just saying, that would be like a guaranteed good time. All of this stuff with that young samurai, um, like you were saying, he is. We don't even know if he's cut out for this life. That's kind of what the the elder one keeps telling him. His the one he's picked as his mentor keeps telling him, like, you know, you don't really know if this is for you. Like, you should kind of go home. Like, um, and he runs off and picks flowers and uh falls in love with this woman in the town, and he's like, I don't know, probably supposed to be in his early twenties, maybe. Why why is he attack when he thinks she's a boy? Mm-hmm. Does he think she's a scout? Why is he attacking her when they start wrestling and then like he touches her boob and realizes she's a woman? Uh because all of the they've already said that everyone is supposed to like go around together and be on guard and have their weapons all the time. And she is they've cut her hair to make her look like a boy. Um uh, and she's out there, like, picking flowers and, you know, in danger, basically. Which we see, um, so one of the themes of this that also fits with Master and Commander is you have your different types of masculinity portrayed in the different characters. And we have 
um, kind of the more loving, gentle way of the the leader of the samurai. And then you have Kikuchio, who, when the 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 villagers start to get scared and back off of the line, he literally picks them up and throws them back onto the fence and shoves their spears back in their hands. He's like, no, no, get your ass over there. <laughs> and I think that's what I he's trying to emulate. It, it shows that you need a balance of all those leadership styles, though. Mm-hmm. Like, that's really the, the best way to do things is when you have a team as these guys become one. And then you, your different leadership styles complement each other. So that way you have the sage one who doesn't get emotional. But every mm-hmm. once in a while, you need someone who gets emotional and who will light a fire under your ass. Uh, what about the fact that Kikuchio becomes like the children's favorite? Uh. That scene, how heartwarming is that scene when he comes out and yells at the children like, there's no rice? Get out of here! <laughs> and then they all come out with bowls of rice with like shitting grins on their faces. Uh-huh. Uh, I loved that so much. And it's, it's, it's a lot of little things like that that I think really flesh out these characters and there's so much softness and they, they smile often. Mm-hmm. I, it's, I didn't expect samurai to, to smile and be gentle. And these, a lot of these men are such gentlemen. Yes. Um, we have, uh, I believe the second one who comes on board or third, if you're counting the apprentice, um, is Goro or Gorobe. Uh, he's the archer, right? Yes, he's he's the tubby one. And he's like, my name fits me, (laughs) which I guess is like Goro, I guess is like bigger or something. Um, And he's just kind of four arms. Yeah, (laughs) you'd be a really good archer then. Or maybe your other arms would get in the way. I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. Goro doesn't seem very nimble. That's true. Yeah. Also, Goro had like three fingers, didn't it? Oh, well, I think. Twelve fingers. Oh, three enough. Three per. <laughs> yeah, you, you got me there. <laughs> we do find out that the villagers have been killing samurai who are sleeping in the hills and taking their weapons, and so they have a stash of weapons. Um, which we get a hell of a monologue here. Yeah, on one hand, From, it's good, but on okay. the other hand, um, these samurai are disillusioned. Yeah, I love this monologue where, uh, what's his name? I, uh, whatever, the, the young drunk guy. Sorry, I Kikuchia. was going to butcher his name. Kikuchia. Um, he has that monologue about, well, yeah, farmers are murderers and thieves and they hide food and they, they do these things, but they live in misery. And what do you do, you samurai? You trample their fields, you steal their food, you rape their women, and you work them like slaves. And so it's just both sides. And as we find out later, when you find out his past, mm-hmm. and so this division of the two sides of him, like literally being at war with each other, it's really heartbreaking. It's finding out, like... I mean, clearly, we already we already know he's from some lower caste and is trying to make his way as a samurai or as a ronin, and that is sort of 
self-loathing that seems to go along with it when he has these moments where he he tries to fit in with the other ones. Um, oh, it's right in here also is where they make the the banner, right? And the mm. banner, you've got the the actual kanji for farmer at the bottom, and then six circles up at the top to represent the samurai. And then there's one triangle and Kikuchio said, he's like, wait, why is there only six? What's up with that? And they point to the triangle and they're like, that's you. You're different. And at first he's shamed by this, but later in a moment when they need to be, have their spirits raised, he goes and gets the flag and plants it on top of the house, like as a source of pride. So it's so I good. Like as a, I look at a triangle being stronger than a circle. I do too. (laughs) Just as a shape on itself, on its own merit. It has points in it. I don't know. A circle deflects. A triangle will poke you. Uh, And like we said, he's running everywhere. He's jumping over the fences. He's knocking the the, uh, villagers around. Like when he's trying to train with them, he's like pushing them and grabbing them kind of by their collars and like lifting them and putting them where they need to be. Uh, And everybody else kind of stands back out of remove and just observes. But Kikuchio is so he's just so full of life through this portion. Um, The harvest begins and the preparation begins. I really like how they pair these two things together. like. As they're cutting down the barley, they start preparing the fields for battle. That was a long intermission. It was. I did some. I, uh, I, I did I laundry. Fa- I didn't. I fast forwarded this okay. time. I figured with a three and a half hour runtime, I could afford to skip three minutes of intermission. Yes, I I was able to put my laundry from the washer into the dryer and put some new, uh, new stuff in the washer. The leader, I think, is this when the men protest about abandoning their houses outside of the line of defense it's right and before the leader yeah. samurai says in war to say you have to save others in order to save yourself yes that's uh, oh the, have you read sun Tzu, art of war ever uh passages i yeah i've read about a third of it mm-hmm. um at one point and a lot of this movie is just like demonstrations of lessons learned and written in that book. Yeah. That's, I had like an annotated version that would go through. It was, I think it was mostly annotation with bits of the Sun Tzu. I do have that over there though. And I have a uh, Hagakuri as well. Um, uh, Kikachu harvests barley like a maniac. <laughs> well, he thinks he's going to get laid. <laughs> I know, but he's doing such a bad job at harvest. I know. <laughs> uh, when he fell off the horse, again, this was another funny <laughs> joke of running behind the building uh-huh. to clearly get the actor off safely and have the horse keep running. Uh, I was worried about that horse, though. Mm-hmm. That big man on that little pony or whatever. What's <laughs> uh, he say? Like, was he a master or a horse master like me? Even. Uh, a tiny horse can fly. This <laughs> is something along those lines. I loved it. Man, this the six samurai really get a kick out of laughing at this guy's antics, don't they? Mm-hmm. And uh, even when he was following them back, 
though we start to get that they're fond of him because he disappears for half of a scene and they have the conversation like, Hey, where did he go? You know what? It's kind of lonely without him. And then when he shows back up, they kind of roll their eyes. He reminds me of, um, uh, Nick Frost in Shaun of the dead. Okay. Just as a guy that like, you can't stand him when he's around, but when he's gone, you miss the hell out of him. Yeah. Like, he, that's a good, yeah, that's, he, that's he's good kind of bumbling, it. but he is friendly and he mostly means well, but he is going to call you a cunt. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just the way he is, you know, he's fine. Um, and I could see also the physicality because Mifune hair here is very, um, like I said, animalistic, but he picks ticks for his characters to have in different movies which is a fascinating thing to watch when you're watching him in go from this to like a modern film uh or you know a modern in the era like a 60s film um how he he can play this totally refined very uptight type of character and here he's constantly scratching like he hasn't had a bath in weeks oh no sean you froze again uh i'm here okay you're there can you still hear oh. me? Oh, oh, no. Oh, wait, there you are. Oh, wait, I see you. Okay, I see good. you. So, uh, I, no, you got to move a lot so I could see that you're moving. <laughs> <laughs> I did get, I was leaning in and listening to you intently. Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> Finish your point. Uh, just what a committed actor Mifune is and how he physically inhabits these roles, I think, is is. It's great. He's, I have a man crush on him. Your casual use of <laughs> country, uh, oh. that like threw my brain. Uh-huh. Cause the whole time you were talking there, I wasn't actually listening. I was just like, when's the last time we just casually had that word on our show? <laughs> It, it it had to have been with Umar, our, our British guest. Yes, that's, yeah. that's got to be the last time. Uh, it's funny because I, I've been listening to a show called The Evolution of Horror, and they just did an episode on Shaun of the Dead. And it, they're, it's British people, and they're just throwing it around uh, because of Ed. Which now, now I understand what just happened there. Yes. <laughs> you have too much exposure. Yes, I'm, I'm numb to it. It's uh, fine. We have to do something to earn that little explicit E by all of our episodes. Uh, so the uh, scouts show up. The bandits come scouting. Um, yeah. And and we go out to ambush them by the horses. Yes. They do. They kill two of them and manage to capture one. Is that what? Uh, yeah. Kikuchiyo. Oh, God, that name. Kikuchiyo. Uh, thank you. Takes one alive. And yeah. That's kind of how he was going to make amends for, oh, because he noisily alerted that the scouts. Yeah. And so the scouts then learned that there were samurai there. And so he make amends by capturing one, which they then drag back into the village. And the, the townspeople want to tear him apart. This guy does get killed. Does he not? Yeah. I, I think what happens, he gets killed off, off screen. Um, but the old woman of the town, who I believe lost her son in the oh, previous right. raid, uh, like 
the samurai pull everybody off of of the scout and then she walks up with like a gardening implement uh, a farming equipment and she they're like let her have him <laughs> yeah and then the the lead farmer is like i'll i'll give her a hand yeah so do you do you picture them like you know how when somebody's teaching somebody to play golf, you stand behind them oh, and God. like wrap your arms around. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing like a a, a standing spooning together uh-huh. with four hands on this rake as they raise it up over this man's. Oh head, my God! Neck. I had not pictured that, but that's fucking grim. <laughs> that's rough, Sean. <laughs> oh. So they decide that the best defense sometimes is a good offense, right? So we're going to go do a little raid on the bandit village itself. Yes. Um, I wanted to check in before that because that kind of kicks off the last act. The different storylines and themes that are all happening, right? Um, We've got this, the villager whose wife was kidnapped by the bandits the previous uh, harvesting season. Um, The ones who still live beyond the border. Uh, and do not want to sacrifice their houses. The Kikuchio is constantly trying to belong with everybody else and fit in somewhere, but he cannot help himself. Uh, The apprentice falling in love. The elder doesn't want to leave his house with uh, the water mill. Yes. Which I mean, water mill's cool, by the way. It's beautiful. That's so cool. (laughs) Um, I get why he wants to die there. It looks like a, peaceful place to die yeah uh and the villagers constantly having Can you like, hear my heartbeat <laughs> i can see it in your eyes you look like yeah you look like jason statham right now oh that's good I, i'll take that no oh, i'm really dialed in on this episode though i feel <laughs> laser beam of focus uh and the villagers constantly weighing the costs of giving in to the bandits versus what they're paying to the samurai and the samurai themselves. Uh, they never debate it. They're doing what they say they're going to do, which is just this other theme. And like I said, they each kind of show different versions of of honor and friendship and masculinity. Uh, you know, in their relationships with each other. So all this stuff is happening in the background of setting up this battle, which I think is, you don't get that in a lot of like action movies. You don't get this many like emotional uh, and thematic beats. You've seen, um, Costner Robin Hood. Yes. Yeah. One of my favorite montages in any movie all time is arming the forest. Mm-hmm. There's an amazing soundtrack, and you get a, uh, this fucking montage where they're raising the bridges, tally ho, and the bridge goes up in between. Yeah, and they're pouring liquid metal into the logs to make arrowheads, and they're shooting the arrows. And by the end of the montage, they're all plucking those arrows yeah, straight yeah. to the chest of the dolls. And like this movie is like two hours of that. Yes, <laughs> just uh, it's you know it's slower, but I love. It's like it's 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 like the heist movie setup, as you said before. Yeah. Where it's like you get your players, you set up the heist, third act, the heist gets executed. Yeah. And yeah. that's that's like the 
the very satisfying setup of this movie. But it's cool that this must have been one of, you know, this was so early to, for a movie to have that that build and that knowledge. Like, this is a great storytelling method. So, did you see the connections between this and um, Star Wars or Spielberg? No, you're going to have to go into some detail there. I, I don't... I don't often compare things to, to, to th- those, those aren't the, my like though no though it's like I, I like the original trilogy of Star Wars uh-huh. enough when I was a kid. And Spielberg I think has some great movies, Jaws and others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, his other movies. But but they're not they're rarely in my mind as points of comparison. Okay, but uh, go go ahead, please uh, explain to me how they are. As as my eyes, I feel like I am talking so <laughs> fast right now. <laughs> as my eyes drift off of of the screen here into my Jaws poster, which hangs behind my monitor at all times. Uh, Jaws I will, is one of my favorite movies. I will talk about this. So, um, Kurosawa is a huge influence on Star Wars specifically. And you can see it in his use of um, transitional wipes from scene to scene, which is... I was going to ask you about those, if those were uh, original. I mean, I know Criterion wouldn't add something like that. Right. But I I was just going to ask you about those side-to-side wipes, because they were very surprising to me. Yeah, it's not how you expect... And a couple times I wrote, uh, we slam cut to, and I was like, no, we actually wipe cut to. (laughs) This thing over here, um, which he uses as uh, Kurosawa is very specific in the way that he uses edits. So when you get one of those wipe cuts, it'll sometimes be a joke, a setup, and then a payoff. As opposed to you get a fade out and a fade back up in a different location. It's like a momentary resetting. Um and it's he's really like dialed in on how he does those, which I think goes over to Star Wars. Um, and the editing that we saw at the beginning when they're in the town is the same as the editing on the beach in Jaws when Roy Scheider is looking out over the water. Uh, and it's like we keep cutting in closer. People will cut in front of the camera and we cut to the water. They cut in front of the camera and we cut back to uh, Brody. And it goes back and forth. It's the same kind of editing pattern. And there was um, an interview. I, Seven Samurai was not the top. Uh, or no, it was close to the top. Uh, but Hidden Fortress is commonly cited. Uh, Kurosawa's Hidden Fortress as like, oh, this is basically um, a new hope. Just, you know, not in space. That's the very first Star Wars. Yes, yes. Gotcha. Well, not, yeah, not you mention it of space opera or samurai opera. Mm-hmm. You, you get your characters and then they all, their stories intertwine and back and forth along a grand scale of things. It makes a lot of sense. The editing was, I was like, God, this, <laughs> so much of this editing is so amazing in that watching it and now it doesn't, you don't feel the age on it. Right. Because editors today are still using this format for so many things. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I really liked, um, and so I just 
went and saw the new the new The Batman last night. I didn't even know this movie existed. <laughs> it's because you don't watch trailers. <laughs> no, but to, oh. I, I just don't pay attention. So who's, who is the who's Batman? Oh, Pattinson. Pattinson. Yes. See, I knew this Our existed. Pats. Yes. Don't tell me I didn't know this existed. <laughs> um, but that movie does a great job of grounding the action, like in a way that a lot of action movies haven't lately. The camera just sets back, and you get a wide shot of of the action happening, and of like the character moving through the space. Almost, um, it's not as extreme as the hallway fight in Old Boy, but it's yeah. it's that same kind of feel where like you sit back and you really? see it happening. Um, and I was that's, really impressed. That's a very pleasant surprise to hear. Yeah, um, I watched the raid a few yep. weeks ago. Yes. The editing in that movie, there are cuts in the fights, but they're few and far between, or it's it's just such a smooth edit to mm-hmm. move to the next camera perspective that your your brain is able to track everything perfectly. You you you're always aware of location of people, places, what's happening. It, it it's unbelievable the choreography and editing. So to hear that about a new Batman movie is very surprising, but I loved, like I, I liked the Bourne movie a lot when it first came mm-hmm. out, the first one. And then rewatching it, I was like, the fuck they're like <laughs> speeding up the, like when he does hand to hand shits, like clearly sped up in post. Yeah. And there's like 8,000 cuts and it's just like hand dancing gibberish. And then somebody's flipping over. <laughs> and that's, uh, the, famous what is it from taken three where um, oh the the fence jump jump, the fence jump takes 13 cuts to get him over the fence (laughs) (laughs) i mean liam neeson's the old man yeah it takes a long time to get over that fence yeah uh or the the basketball scene in catwoman yes yeah oh halle berry catwoman what a movie that was um actually i i referenced the the fence jump in one of my articles not too long ago when I was talking about the three three five five three three five whatever it was, the Jessica Chastain uh, spy movie that just came out, um, because the whole thing is cut like the fence jump. Uh, and when I went to Google how many cuts were in that, the next article was Catwoman basketball scene. <laughs> <laughs> it's like somebody did Wait, a video. You can, you can Google how many cuts are in movies. Yeah, especially wow. that one, like. Wow. So, okay, this is a whole other thing. I have notebooks full of um, scene breakdowns of, like, how many angles you did in a particular scene. So I can figure out, like, how long it would take to shoot that scene. Like Soderbergh movies? Yes. Or Blood Simple. Blood Simple's a big one. A Thief, I did. Yeah. Really? That's yep. interesting. Hey, aren't we is are we talking about Thief? Are we talking about Thief? I did we was that we decided on? Wasn't it Thief Thief and Drive? Oh god, I hope so. With with, <laughs> with the Giuseppe? Yes. Well, I think that's what we're doing next month. Yeah. You're uh, you're the one that's supposed to remember things. That's a great twofer. 
I just I just search in the thread <laughs> if, to find if, it. If we haven't if we haven't set that, we should. Yes, that's what it is now. Um, uh, that's awesome that you did a super deep dive like that. I've never done a technical breakdown of a movie. It is it's fascinating to like time a scene, see how many cuts are in a scene, see how many different angles they use to build that scene. Where do they change? And that comes back to this in those early scenes. What we see is these very wide shots of the samurai action happening. And um, everything is very deliberately placed, right? Like you have the farmers looking on, studying the samurai. You have the, as they're picking up different guys, we see them in the background as things are happening. Um, during the training, we get a lot of very particular placement. Once this action kicks off here, uh, when they go to the fort, it's just chaos. It's like he has set everything up so that you already know where it is. So he doesn't have to give you do that work now. He can just go for the most visceral thing possible. That's a great point. And I think, I don't know if you ever saw Free Fire movie by Ben Wheatley. But it's just, it's a shootout in a warehouse, but that movie does not do the work of establishing its geography. So when it gets time for the shootout, it's a bunch of tight shots on characters, but it's, I have no idea where these people are, what their line of sight is, mm -hmm. who's vulnerable from what, which shooter, like it, the language, the visual language of that movie is super muddy and hard to understand. Two movies that do that well. One classic, Assault on Precinct 13, does a very good job. You know what's embarrassing? Job. I love John Carpenter. Never seen that movie. Oh, okay. That's, that's I've seen. I've seen almost every Carpenter. Uh -huh. Like that one. And uh, what's his sci-fi? Starman? Dark Star? Oh. No, other one, Starman. Starman? I watched. I couldn't get through Dark Star. I tried when yeah, the blank check podcast was doing it yeah and i rough. just had to fast forward around yeah um the other one that i just watched was cop shop that came out last year uh, never heard of it reminds me of free fire uh that's a that was a very fun movie <laughs> i enjoyed it a lot cop shop huh yep cop shop with frank really? grillo I'll check. oh i'll check it out and and my friend david vaughn who plays a paramedic that gets killed very quickly <laughs> It was That's awesome. Fun. Yes. I was like, hey, I didn't know Vaughn was in this movie. And then he gets capped. It's great. Um, well, uh, who else gets capped? Is uh, Hihachi gets shot during the raid when ugh. he goes back for the farmer guy. Farmer guy's wife comes out of the hut and then she goes, it's on fire. And she goes back in the hut. Oh my gosh. That's it's yeah. the beginning of the heartbreaking scenes in this movie that one when she screams when she sees him and runs back into the burning building yeah just uh ugh, whatever that woman has gone through to mm -hmm. the point where she sees her husband and runs the, oh that's just and then that guy getting hihachi killed in the process mm -hmm. by breaking rank essentially um yeah it's it's starting to get heavy here at the end yeah um, this is where we also get the visual of, uh, what they do with the samurai. If they die, 
They bury them in a mound, and Kikuchio sticks his sword in the dirt as, like, his memorial tombstone thing. Excuse me. Excuse me. So, we've both had to reset today. We've both had dog issues today. It's an old woman walking with walking poles and Ripley standing at the window barking at her. Ah, okay. This woman is not a threat, Ripley. I felt so bad because when we when you were resetting, um our mail delivery person, uh every day she gets out of her mail delivery vehicle and hands my dogs dog treats. It's so sweet when they see it coming down the road, they go and they sit at the edge of their electric fence and they're just they just wait for her. They don't do this for me. I can offer them treats. They will not sit down. They just run the other way. But she does it <laughs> and they go and sit down and wait for her. And I felt so bad because baby's inside today because it's raining. Hank, I can't get to come inside because he's an insane dog. Um, but I felt so bad because baby was standing at the window looking at her and then looking at me and then looking at her just like, that's my friend. My friend's out there. Uh, Did Hank get a treat out there? Hank got a treat. Baby had to watch and Hank. baby get didn't? His, yes. Oh, no. Yeah. So I gave baby a bone, and then I had to yell at her for chewing it, because she was chewing it on the mic, so. <laughs> yeah. Life with dogs, huh? It's it's constantly absurd, living with these <laughs> these beasts. Um, They're hilarious, though, man. So... Uh, so this shot... Later, as we get back to the village and they, they start to burn, the the raiders burn the, the buildings on the exterior of the village. There's some shots of just, like, the characters in the foreground with these buildings burning in the background that are, like, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And then the camera movement when the guy uh, goes to get the flag and he climbs up the side and plants... Like, some of the shots... The comp, the comp, oh fuck, bang, <laughs> flowing through my tongue and I can't talk. The composition of some of these shots is incredible. And especially the fact that this was like, we have one, two tries at this because of that building being on fire. Yes. And then that's it. Our chance is gone. It's, I mean, um, if you're interested in this stuff, there is a video called, uh, Composing movement, I believe. Every frame of painting, uh, Tony Zhao did the video, and it just it talks about how Kurosawa used uh, different elements. He used natural elements like wind, rain, and fire, which you see all of in this movie, as they play within the frame, and they're very purposeful, and they move, like he moves his actors around these elements. And it just makes them, it heightens the drama of everything. Um, And it, like, it feels, I don't think movies feel real ever. Like, you know, they're fake. It's, it's fine. But it feels so present when you see that these houses burning in the background. Like, I could feel the heat from them, basically. And the danger that was getting closer. Uh went later when they're at the mill and it's burning mm-hmm. and like they're standing so close to it and you can see the steam coming from the creek as it's hitting parts of the building it just, uh-huh. it, it looks hot so uh 
the a young family, uh, the the children, I believe, of the old man who lives in the mill, run to the mill to get him out before the invaders come. And the next thing we know, the mill is on fire. Um, and Kikuchio says, "What? What about the old man? What about the baby that they had with them?" And he breaks ranks and runs to the mill. And this is where, first of all. If I didn't already love him, I love him for this. Like he he sees that somebody could get hurt. One person could get hurt in this battle, and he wants to go save them immediately. He he has that depth of feeling. And that that gets to me. For sure. Uh this gets real heavy when the woman comes walking out holding the baby and hands him off and she's been stabbed. And she presumably dies there. And when he starts, uh, like in a like mourning, oh, fuck. When he starts screaming in agony, like this baby is me. This mm-hmm. is who I was, and this is who I am. That that's the heavy as hell moment. And suddenly, it puts context to him striving to fit in, him striving to like appeal to a father figure. Um, to approve of him and also the way that he connects with the children. Like it totally, it makes sense. Now you, you find out that he is an orphan. It's like, Oh, okay. All of that starts to come together. It really coalesces around that moment. So we're going to get the final assault now, huh? Ugh. Uh, so I love this is so cool, like setting up the spears on the exterior of the village, like let in one to two horsemen, then close the wall with the spears and we will just slowly pick them off. And the fact that this movie actually has like a, a body counter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. So you're just like, all right, 24 to go. All right. 18 to go. Uh-huh. Seven more. It's, it, it, I did not expect them. <laughs> To be crossing people off of a list as they kill them. Yep. Uh, one bandit uh, gets so close to escaping where they're they're inside and then he jumps over the fence and he's on the other side of the fence and somebody gets him <laughs> with a spear at like the very edge of the spear. It's uh-huh. like that dude was inches from escaping. <laughs> inches. Everything here, it feels so... Like the frames are very simple but loaded. We get this like really cool three like triangular blocking um, of the characters, um, and I've I've referenced this in other movies, um, and I've pulled still frames from movies who like clearly copy this stuff, where you have two characters kind of in the foreground and one in the background in the center, um, and then the camera will follow one of them going forward. And it's just, it makes it feel like you're in three different shots, two or three different shots with just the simple camera move and person move. Um, and the actor moves into a close up from a three shot. And it's so, it's just so well thought out, so well put together that I, I just always appreciate that kind of stuff. You've seen band of brothers, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's been a long time, but yeah. Uh, the samurai who runs, like the badass quiet samurai mm-hmm. who runs into the darkness 
and comes back with a musket. That reminds me of Lieutenant Spears in one episode of Bra- A Band of Brothers where there's a division of the army on the other side of town and they desperately need to get a message to them, but mm-hmm. there's no way to do it. And so Spears just runs through the German lines, <laughs> just sprints past everybody yeah. to the other side of town, delivers the message, and then sprints back to his other friends. <laughs> and it's just this moment that like, breaks everybody's brains because yeah. it's so illogical and that i really got vibes from that from this this part when that dude comes back and he just kind of hands the musket off and then the young man is like he didn't brag about it he just does it he never talks about his conquests like <laughs> it's just like no he doesn't he's a badass well and we'll see later when kikachu does essentially the same thing Mm-hmm. But he's doing it for his own glory. Yeah, he gets reprimanded for it. Um, this is where the scale of it, because it starts with one or two horses coming in, and then it's more and more like getting in this bottleneck. That's this is where I get scared. There's lots of shots of the horses trampling feet, lots of people falling down. Like horses are terrifying to me. Like I don't know if we've talked about it before. Horses are scary. They're like, they weigh too much, and I can't, I, I don't understand them. You give me a big dog, I feel like I could commune with a wolf. Like, you give me a wolf, or, or maybe a fox, I know the foxes are little, a coyote, something like a, a canis lupus, I can deal with one of these things. You give me a horse, I have no idea what's going on in their head. So you're more afraid of a horse? If you're out camping in the woods, and a wild horse walks into your camp. Fuck that. Fuck you're more that. Afraid of, <laughs> you're more afraid of that than a wolf? I feel like the wolf, I could, I could scare off. A horse, I feel like if I scare it off, it's going to trample everything in sight. They, can, they just step on you. <laughs> they don't, they don't do that. <laughs> horses okay. don't. Horses so, don't. So attack people. <laughs> I gr- I grew up in Amish country, right? And I yeah. distinctly remember going to church one day and everyone was sad. And I was like, why is everybody sad? It turns out that um, at the intersection, just the night before, the one uh, stoplight we had in town... <laughs> Turned, it turned into a flashing yellow light at like five or six. I noticed that you said the, the intersection. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Uh, somebody's horse got loose from their uh, horse and buggy and ran and jumped into some, the front of somebody's car and killed them. So one of our parishioners died by horse. And I've been scared of horses ever since. That. The horse panicked. It jumped and killed a dude. Was he in a convertible? No, it went through the windshield. Hooves through the windshield. Huh. Mm -hmm. That's like Steve Irwin level odds of death. This is what I'm thinking. But you remove the car. I'm just a little human next to a horse. It's got way better odds. You know what the scariest horse is? What's that? A moose. (laughs) 
Imagine a moose walking through oh. your camp. That have you ever just? I've never seen a moose in person, mm-hmm. but the scale of them doesn't make sense. Moose, moose, they're prehistoric. Moose are like twelve foot tall. It doesn't make sense. It's no. mind boggling how big they are. Uh, did you see that MythBusters? About oh the windshield. Yes, hitting. Yeah, yeah, and they're yeah, like yeah. they're like no, moose legs are taller than cars. <laughs> Like the, yeah, no, the moose that, body the, doesn't the even moose start. So was clipping like the tip of the windshield yes. on that model that they build. Yeah. Yes, that's a good one. Oh, um, so Kikachu is uh, going to respond to being reprimanded by blasting himself off to the moon on sake <laughs> in a way that you should not consume sake. No, too much, too much, especially. Don't get blasted the night before a battle. No, but the thing is, he is fearless. He's not that bright, but he is fearless and he's tenacious. I think he's like a a drunken warrior, like that Jackie Chan movie kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're going to get some epic rain going, huh? Oh, my God. I don't know how they did this. So, uh, yeah, it's going to did they just have to wait day after day? For it to be pouring rain and shooting that. I can't imagine them having intricate rain systems like we do today in the 50s. I have no idea. I really should. Uh, so my next book I'm going to read after the Saijin Suzuki book, my next nonfiction book, uh, apart from our book for book club, is Akira Kurosawa, um, some kind of autobiography, which hopefully he talks about it in there. I don't know, though. I would love it if Akira Kurosawa actually titled his autobiography some kind of autobiography. That's what it's called. I don't like it as much anymore. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry. (laughs) That's awesome. That's a great, that's a great autobiography title. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's, oh, I took it upstairs. Um, But. I don't have many notes as we go forward here for our, the end of this movie. No, um, I got the men are all tired. Uh, one of the other samurai is killed off screen. Uh, the men are all tired. That was Goro, I think, right? I think, yes. Um, yeah. K- Kikuchi get shot. At goes some point. to, uh, he spends the night by the graves of the fallen samurai, which is another like, this guy who's all bluster is actually all heart kind of moment. Um, the apprentice gets busted with the local girl that he's kind of having a fling with. Um, mm, damaged goods. Yes. That's, that's one way to look at your own daughter. Oh, that, that was gross. But it's another thing. I don't think the movie is condoning that viewpoint. I think it's... No, 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 no. I... I I think the movie's on the side of the young lovers. Yes, totally. Um, the the very final battle scene. So the the battle takes place over like two days, um, with little breaks in between. That the final battle scene where it's just pouring rain is fucking savage. Like, I like how it just it goes to show like the exhaustion of war and mm-hmm. the toll that it takes. And there's thirteen left. And hey, we're so tired and hungry, 
that we have to open the gates now and finish this before we have no strength left. Uh-huh. And so it's just like the gauntlet is laid down here at the end. If if you want it, we're opening the gates. Come and get it. And it's like the the peasants, the farmers now, seeing their evolution alongside these warriors. Mm-hmm. And then when you get like the warriors, the samurai, like those moments of pride, which we'll see a lot of master and commander. There's a lot of pride stuff happening where it's just like it gives you those warm fuzzies when somebody does something good or steps up to the moment mm-hmm. and then they get that recognition from that leader that they want. Yep. It, it just it makes me feel good. It fills me with dopamine or something. That's uh we've talked about our our triggers are the things that can can get the tear ducts growing. And for me, that is always one of them. Somebody like yeah. sacrificing themselves or putting themselves on the line for the group and then getting the pat on the back uh, always does it for me. I just finished the bang. Ugh. I'm waiting for the crash. We'll see. Um, we'll see. So the, some of the bandits uh, hold the town's women captive in one of the buildings. Kikuchio does not wait for anybody else, and he just storms in uh, because that's who he is. He charges ahead, and for his efforts, he gets shot in the stomach by the only musket that the bandits have left, which has to be very bad luck because muskets take a long time to reload in the 1500s. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, Earlier in the movie when he was taunting the musket shooters, mm-hmm. it was very like Braveheart moment. Yeah. Slapping his ass at them as yep. they fire and miss. Uh, and I do, I just love the fact that Kikuchio gets shot, chases the guy who shot him through the house, and then right before he dies, he stabs him on this bridge. And just the symbolic nature of he stabs the guy on the bridge, the guy falls off into the mud below, and Kikuchio dies on the bridge. And then we find out that was the last of the bandits. Like, this guy who they underestimated the whole time and had to reprimand and kind of keep in line wound up taking out the guy with a gun. Like, it's such a good kind of redemptive moment for him. Yeah, he was one of the MVPs also just, like, rallying the troops mm-hmm. again and again. Seeing, like, the one to get everyone when the farmers look scared to get them to battle cry. To yes. raise their spears and buy into this mentality. So, and, uh, you know, it, it, this this whole plan only works if these guys can convince the farmers of, like, the hierarchy system and, mm-hmm. like, discipline. And everyone has to participate. And everyone has to buy into the system. Yep. Just as like an English naval boat. Yep. If if people start to not buy into the system, everything breaks down and you're all going to die. Yeah. It's, uh, we all have to follow the same guy, but we all have to pull for each other. If somebody doesn't yeah. do their, their part, then the, it just falls to pieces. Uh, what do you think about this cut from the, the the battlefield with bodies strewn all over it and Kikuchio in the background on this bridge with mud all over him 
dying to the farmers joyously singing and planting their next crops. I really like it because for me, it's a moment of if you, if you teach a man to fish, he'll feed himself forever. Okay. Where you see the the vigor in these people now, and mm-hmm. like, it, it you as they're doing things. I'm sure they were previously planting things with uh to the beat of a drum. Mm-hmm. But this feels very military esque now. How okay. they, their mindset has changed, and so I I you know it's 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 countered with the lead samurai saying for us it wasn't a victory. It's it's their victory, but for us we lost, and mm-hmm. it shows the four graves on the hill. Um, I I don't do. You, what's your take? Like, what do you feel when you see that cut? It's I like your version of it. Mine is a little more cynical in that I see that they have maybe kind of cast the samurai themselves aside, like they've a little bit forgotten that the, it was those guys that got them there um, because we see nobody says anything to them. There's no thank you <laughs> moment. Uh, that That is true. They are definitely, they're leaving this town as Ronin, not mm-hmm. really as saviors or, but I, I think the, the old wise uh, leader. He's the one where it's like he, his pride is so. So secure is his pride that he doesn't need the recognition from these people. You uh-huh. know, he's he's sad about his dead friends, but he's he's not bitter about any of this. If that is indeed uh, what happened. Um, I do think that. he found something um and it's it's a theme that i've seen repeated now in several movies of he maybe didn't think he had that much to lose uh because he's a ronin and he's out on his own in the world but he found this team of other men that he could bond with and now uh you know Four of them are gone. Four of the seven are gone. And the apprentice is probably going to go chase that girl. <laughs> and she's ignoring him. I did like that. In the end, it's like. It, it, that was a very young lover's story. Where it's like, yeah, you guys think you're passionately in love. But if you actually look at your lives and who you two are and where you come from and where you potentially want to go, this isn't going to work. Yeah. and it's the the life that he thinks he wants is not compatible with this other thing this like beautiful little love affair that he wants to have as well it's he's got to pick a path and stay on it because those two things do not work together it's de niro and heat you want to be a heist guy or do you want to have the wife because you can't have both yep uh that that'll wrap it huh yeah, what do you what do you rate this movie, Sean? I'm really glad I watched this. This is one of my film buff shame movies that I had not seen, so I'm glad to take it off the list. Um, I loved it. I loved the 
tactical nature of it combined with the character building. For my own enjoyment, it's too long. That would be my one detractor, is that I, I, I would like this movie to be closer to a high two or three hours flat or something, just for my own personal enjoyment. So for me, it's a four and a half out of five. Okay. How about you? Um, for me, I kind of like Master and Commander. Uh, I wound up loving these vibes. I know that's like such a, it's not what Kurosawa was thinking at the time, but the hanging out with these guys, those scenes, I want that part to go on forever. I really want just an ongoing, I could watch a series about the town and the farmers dealing with the different samurai. And especially once the, the group comes together, I don't want that brotherhood broken up. And the, but also once the action starts, I was in the action the whole time. Like looking at the outside, I'm like a 57 minute action scene sequence basically i'm like that's too much <laughs> like let's cut that down a little bit um but when i'm watching it i find myself engrossed the whole time so i don't know what i would cut if i if i were to i don't i don't know what scenes i would cut either okay so i i don't really know i don't feel like anything there's a lot of fat on the movie yeah i just it's just it's just a grueling watch yes. to do three and a half hours of um and then for most of your friends to die. <laughs> I Yeah, I hear you, man. I, I was kind of content with, like, when they're talking about the bandits not coming, it, wouldn't that be the best right. thing to happen? It's kind of like, yeah, I, I'd be down to just kind of hang out, fortify the village. Yeah. Do some games, train some villagers, and then call it a day. Movie over. Yeah. Our, our, our gang goes off to the next town and or their next adventure. Yeah. That's I'd be interested. I have not watched uh Magnificent Seven since I was a kid. Um and so I would be interested to to see that and see especially how the, the deaths stack up if they if they do the same thing. I've never seen it. I'd be curious to watch it just because Westerns are one of my um, least watched genres. So yes. I, I wanna get some more in. All right. Well, that'll do it. We'll be talking about Master and Commander after the break. Up next, we're going to be talking about Peter Weir's Master and Commander from 2003. This movie had a budget of $150 million. And I just wanted that to sink in because that's insane. (laughs) (laughs) So, Josh, you've never seen this movie. I was a senior in high school. And my English teacher was like, all right, who here has seen Master and Commander? And like two people in the class raised her hand. And she's like, guys, you guys need to see that movie. That's awesome. And so I watched it a year or two later, first in college. And it's a movie that's grown with me. I used to watch it on like Sunday mornings. Mm -hmm. And recently I've started to read the books now. These are based on a series by uh, Patrick O'Brien. That's uh, there's 20 books about Aubrey and Metrin, this these friends in their adventures, and um, it, it, there's just so much effort put in 
to the historical accuracy. It's this is just a wild movie. So I, I'm going to be really long winded if I don't put it over to you. So, Josh, <laughs> what was your experience? What, what did you know of this movie? What did you think about it going in? Uh, I did think this would be a perfect Sunday morning movie. Like, this is the movie, like, from the outside, it's what it feels like. It's what it looks like. And I wasn't entirely wrong, but it's a much different movie than I thought it was going to be. Like, I didn't think this was going to be Russell Crowe's happiest role. Like, yeah, that's that is shocking to me. I thought he was going to be a good stern. Point. He's a curmudgeon in movies. Yes. I'll tell you, he nails the spirit of Jack Aubrey from the books. Really? It's Jack Aubrey is like, he's a man of passion and he's just such a, a balanced leader when it comes to, he's just, he's decisive as a captain and as a leader, he's a man that you want to follow and just always seems to know the right kind, the right hand to use, whether it's to make a joke with a crewman, whether it's to actually use full discipline um, Russell Crowe nails it, as does Paul Bettany as Matrix. Like these two are perfectly cast, and they nail the books. Are the entire book series is basically about friendship with uh-huh. Navy stuff surrounding it, and so the fact that this movie finds that heart with these two characters, um, it's it's wonderful. So here's a question I had with the uh, Aubrey character. Um, Especially in the first half, two-thirds of this movie, people are always bringing up Lord Nelson. Uh, they're, they're talking about that Aubrey served with him, um, that he has been alongside him for a couple things. And does that play into his character at all in a larger way that you've seen? Because it feels like, like yeah... Aubrey, you're great, but there's Lord Nelson. I mean, come on. That's like, is there any sort of, um, no, it's, okay. it's all, it's all admiration okay. for Nelson. Nelson is basically some of the stories about that guy and what he did. It's like he was a superhero uh-huh. of the Navy. Like the feats that he pulled off. And the crazy shit that happened around that guy. It's just everyone is just left in awe of the man. So it's it's nothing negative about Jack because the men call him Lucky Jack. Yeah. And he's like, from what I can tell in the books, he, he's a very desirable captain and also one that's very admired for, you know, taking... uh jobs like this so we start we're on the hms surprise which is a 28 gun ship it's 1805 oceans are now battlegrounds how about that title <laughs> card i loved that Mm-hmm. and so they're they're supposed to take the french ship the acheron which is a 42 gun ship and man this movie starts off i'm reading the second book in the series right now and i'm 80 pages in mm-hmm. and we're still hanging out at some fancy villa on land okay and i'm bored as fuck so this because i'm just not interested in like him courting a woman finding a wife and stuff so the fact that this movie starts in the second act is so smart because we just as they say later this boat is home 
And by putting us on the boat for 95% of this movie, the boat is home for us. Yeah. The boat is England for us. We have no other relation. So it, it forces you to just live with these sailors. I thought it was so interesting. Like, I, I expected kind of the, the larger shape of this, but I did not expect to be introduced to the boat when everyone is sleeping um, to, like, it's the night, and then action happens right away. Like, I thought it was going to build to this, and I kind of read the synopsis, and I was like, okay, I kind of see where it's going. But no, it is like a few minutes in, and they're pulling naval maneuvers against the the Acheron or the Acheron, the the Phantom ship, as the guys come to call it, because it's so fast um, and comes out of nowhere. Like, yeah, I think my th- my third note was, oh shit, cannon fire, because <laughs> I was not expecting that. <laughs> that- that volley, if once you get a 5.1 system, I recommend the okay. first five minutes of this movie to test out your new speaker system. Because I listened to this movie today with headphones on, with mm-hmm. subtitles on, just to get a different read on it. And it, it was missing on, when I watched this with the 5.1, the creaks of the ship are all around you. The noises oh, okay. are everywhere. So it just feels alive. It's it's an incredibly sound designed movie. Yeah. And so this volleys when you hear the cannonballs like going from the front to the back of your house. It like your house shakes. It's awesome. Well, it did win an Oscar for best sound editing. Oh, it deserved it. So uh, so right off the bat also introduces us to uh, this movie is almost a series of vignettes, I mm-hmm. would say. And one of them being Hollum. Hollum is the character who's later identified as the Jonah. Oh, okay. And right off the bat, we see he's unable to make the call to beat to quarters. He thinks he sees the French ship, but he can't make the call. Someone else has to do it. So we see this guy over the course of this movie fail and fail again and again, <sighs> which leads to his demise, yeah. essentially. Um, uh, so they take all the captain's silver below deck to hide it. And they go running for the fog. Okay, why are there literal children on this boat? Do you know this? That's I love that about this movie is that that's how the English Navy worked. Is that it's I think it was typically kids who came from wealthier backgrounds Mm -hmm. would enter the Navy to become lieutenants. And so you would start as a midshipman. And that's when you see them being trained to identify noon. Uh-huh. Using the the sextants, uh, whatever, yeah. So, and I think that's really ballsy of this movie to yeah to show children in battle. And shout out to Blakeney because that kid yes. is one of the most badass kids in any story I've ever seen. Okay, so just his arc just now got me a little choked up. <laughs> thinking I of him win, at the end but Oof. at the end oh, when he's stepping oh my it gives me <laughs> goosebumps like yes. top to bottom yes so they're getting chased they have the weather gauge and so they make for the fog and they get towed in the music when they're towing the ship to the fog is epic man 
and there's a great moment where Russell Crowe and the French captain make eye contact through their telescopes uh-huh. as one's chasing the other. Uh, all of this is horrifying to me. You don't you don't do worm shit. I think neither one of yeah. us are all that fond of, of heights. Uh, I don't like the ocean. The ocean is vast yeah. and unknowable. It is too much. There is too much water and too much. It's it's not. It's like, and I don't care if I died right now to throw my body in the woods and let the you know let my wolf friends eat me or whatever. That's fine. But there's something about being lost at sea that is terrifying on an existential level to me. Yeah. What do the we we turn his body to become corruption or yes. something when they yeah. dump bodies in the ocean? Uh, yeah, I could see that. I definitely have like open water giant space fear like the idea of like floating drifting in space off of earth is a terrifying idea yes uh but i will tell you this movie in like an existential way it's like my life is boring and these people lived a life of such grand adventure that it makes me question what am I doing? Like, I should, would I rather be living this life where it's like extremely dangerous, but it's, it's living, you know, it's, right. it's doing remarkable things and to be on this boat. And it's, but then it's like, I don't want to do the battle stuff and I don't want to do the bad weather stuff, but I do just want to sail around with Jack Aubrey. Yes, I could get down with that. Um, I have watched too many videos of, um, boats encountering bad weather bad big waves and like the wave crashing over the top of the boat and i'm like no no thank you i will i I will not sir not for me so the next character we're going to get introduced to is paul bettany as stephen maturin and i think patrick o'brien's decision to write this character in is genius for many many reasons the primary one he's our mechanism for those of us who know nothing about the navy because he doesn't know shit about the navy either and so he he's asking the dumb questions at the diner or at the dinner table Mm -hmm. but those are questions that we the audience are asking so as he learns and this is the same in the books okay as he learns and asks these questions of jack jack is delighted at like his friend's lack of knowledge, but also kind of delights in Stephen's disrespect for the Admiralty and yeah. for like just naval life as a whole, because he looks at things as more of a naturalist. And so the two of them bouncing back and forth of like their opposing philosophies kind of rounds out and completes both of them and elevates each of them to become more than they were. So I really liked this aspect and they uh, they started off from the beginning of their relationship, right? Like that you have one man who believes in the hierarchy of the natural world and you have one man that believes in the hierarchy of the the British Admiralty naval system. And like that's how he lives his life and you live with honor and you you try to lead your men to be the best men that they can be. Um, and it's the fact that you have 
Paul Bettany pushing against that at different times. And it's just really interesting that you've got these, these two things playing off each other. And it reminded me a lot of, um, in a much gentler way, the movie, uh, platoon where you have the, the two different kind of father figures that represent. Okay. Yeah. 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 It, it reminded me of that kind of like, we have this dichotomy except for in this, they do come together time and again, and they're shown to be like, you know, comrades in arms and Paul Bettany fights it at one point, which is awesome. Like, I didn't know how much I needed that to be able to see him like hacking at somebody with a sword because it's so cool. <laughs> and in the books, he has not become a fighter yet. Really? At one point, they board a ship and he stays on their ship to man the wheel while everyone else boards because he's a pacifist at this point. But, so I'm curious to see if in the books he does become a fighter as he is in this movie. But he is a genius, right? He's, he's a genius surgeon. So, as they say in this movie, um, physician he is, ain't a common surgeon. And that's him being a naturalist and have, being a man who's actually studied anatomy. He's invaluable to this boat. And the amount of love that the men have for him mm -hmm. is incredible because he's a healer. And he, he gives them such a higher chance of survival and also of just living a more comfortable life on the boat that these men admire him so much. And you see that when he does, when one guy gets bonked on the head with the wood beam and he has yeah. to take out a circle of his skull and then replace it with like a coin that's been flattened out. Uh, that's, there's some humor in this movie that I think is really well placed. Uh, that these are his brains and all the men lean in. Yes. That's a funny little moment, man. And when the, the, the sergeant comes out to yell at everyone, back to work, back to work. And then he also stops to lean over yeah. and peer into the guy's <laughs> yes. skull. Yes. <laughs> I really appreciated but that. It's uh, the scene with Blankney getting his arm amputated mm -hmm. is very hard to watch. And I think Peter Weir does a great, a great job of showing just enough of what's about to happen. And he does this twice. He then lets the actors' faces tell the entire story, mm -hmm. both in this scene and then later when Stephen is shot and performing his own surgery. Mm -hmm. And it just he lets the actors' face tell the story in a way that like is almost harder to watch than watching gory special effects. I think this first one is for me much harder to watch because it's a kid. He's like oh, when that kid when that kid whimpers, yeah, it, oh, it, oh man, that's yeah, it's hard to watch. Trying to think of what he would have pulled from to be able to do this, like from a practical level, is interesting. But seeing it within the movie, it's it is hard to watch. And at that point, you don't know if he's gonna live, right? Like they're doing this amputation. But you kind of get the feeling like he's real sickly looking in this scene. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, is he going to make it? Is he going to be OK, even without his arm? I thought that was going to be the arc of his story was like, oh, we have our child who we have to take care of and pamper the whole time because he's going to be dead. 
how wrong you were. They proved me so fucking wrong. <laughs> this little badass kid. Um, so my next note is basically at the dinner table. Well, first, some guys show him a model of the Acheron. And so he okay. learns kind of. Yeah. <laughs> that scene is so yeah. great. From I was still in the mode of expecting Aubrey to be for his men not to like him to be chafing under the the system right is that because it's russell crowe and you're just going into this thinking that you're not going to like him uh, well i mean i was thinking he's going to be is that part of it that's part of it that he's going to be a curmudgeon but also it seemed like perfect casting for this kind of a role where you would have somebody who's gruff and maybe cares about his men but you know pushes them too much and does all this stuff and doesn't really get there. And there's going to be a contingent that doesn't like him because of the way he treats them. But we don't have that. And we have these men who show up and say, uh, so-and-so got to see the Acheron being built in Boston Harbor. It's an American ship that the, that the French privateers took. And this is its hull design. And his guard comes down because he's impressed with the fact that they made this model, the fact that they brought it to him, and what the model is showing him. And he is, like, tender and open to his men below him, which is not what I expected at all. This framing is accurate. Exactly accurate, sir. Thank you, Lance. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Kill it. An extra ration of rum for these men. Thank you very much, sir. sir. I was saving for saluting day. Don't drink wine. Don't drink wine. I he's just a wonderful leader. <laughs> and he gives them the extra ration of rum. Mm-hmm. And Killick, the the cook, I love when he grumbles like, "Oh, saving that for salute. We'll oh fine. We'll drink wine. We'll drink wine." Like, yeah, he's very grumbly. This guy, the the servant who's always bringing the food in and out and drinks and stuff. How bad? Do you want to be at this dinner table with these guys howling with laughter? Oh my god! I mean, not drinking anymore for you, but yeah, yeah. just being there and these stories, and it's so boisterous and loud, and it doesn't need to be loud, but I love it when <laughs> you get a room like that and everyone's riled up. And, yeah. Oh, I, I just want to. I want to stay in this scene, like you said earlier. Some of the mm-hmm. scenes with the samurai. I want to stay in this one for hours. This the whole thing reminded me of um, in this early one where everything is going well, reminded me of Big Night, where you have the boisterous dinner and then everyone is dancing. And in here, when when they clear the room away, um, Jack and uh, what's Stephen Stephen play music together. And the cook kind of complains about it, like. He's like, oh, they're screeching, and they never play anything different. <laughs> never something you can dance to. Yeah, it's never something you can dance to. Uh, so Stephen and Jack meet at a concert, and they are, like, in, in the book, and they're, like, infatuated with each other to the point where in the book, a few times people kind of hint that, like, do you think they're gay? Uh-huh. And because they just they love each other that much oh. and so it started with like their conversation of music and music is like the glue of the friendship uh-huh. and it's honestly i think it's it's like weirdly the heartbeat of this movie mm-hmm. is the music 
and the musical interludes. And props to both actors for doing a great job of faking playing the instruments Mm -hmm. very well. Like, they clearly sat down with somebody for a few hours to learn how to mimic them as they played these songs. I think I saw in one video they had a live violin player on set off camera. Um, Um, Especially, uh, Paul Bettany especially looks like he's doing it. Um, Russell Crowe? He might be a musician, Paul Bettany. Because they mention it in, in the... One of the things that got him cast was Russell Crowe said to Peter Weir, he's more of a musician than an actor. Okay. Because Peter Weir was hesitant to cast him because they didn't want to double up on A Beautiful Mind because they're both in that movie as well. Oh, okay. I don't remember Paul Bettany in A Beautiful Mind. I don't really remember much of A Beautiful Mind. Wasn't he his imaginary friend? For some reason, in my head, that was Ed Harris. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Might be. I don't know. <laughs> we could both be wrong, and it's maybe it's Dabney Coleman, but uh, it's been 20 years since I saw it. Mm. Um, but so. Uh, also, did you ever listen to Russell Crowe's band? No. Okay. I remember, I remember seeing an interview with him on... 60 minutes or cbs sunday morning mm-hmm. and so I, there must have been some clips of his band playing yeah that's i totally i like them but they're very much in the uh kind of roots rock sort of thing that i enjoy so it, mm. australian um john cougar mellencamp bruce springsteen knockoff something in that in that range and you're about right okay yeah i could see that yep Back at this dinner table, when he tells a story of serving with Lord Nelson, first, I think, again, Jack does something so great, which he often diffuses things with a joke and then says something serious. So, like, here he tells the story of Lord Nelson, and the kid asks him about him. And he tells the funny story of, Aubrey, could you pass me the salt? Yes. And gets his laugh. And then after the laugh, he then goes serious, and he says, all right, all kidding aside... He said, my zeal for king and country keeps me quite warm. And I know, and you see Steven smirk of like, bullshit. And Jack goes, no, I know you could dismiss it as mere enthusiasm. But with him, you felt your heart glow. And it cuts to the kid's face who asked the question. You see this kid's heart glowing. Yes. And it's just like, Jack is that, that level of leader. That's same as Seven Samurai. He's just just somebody that you want to follow i know i said that a few times now but it's like the whole crux of this movie is on like will you fall in love with lucky jack and if you do then three cheers for lucky jack and let's fucking go (laughs) so after he tells the kid about lord nelson then we get what's probably the highlight of this entire movie what do you think of this part josh (laughs) well at first i couldn't actually see the weevils like that first shot was so quick, and I was like, those are two pieces of bread. Why is he calling them weevils? Is this a metaphor <laughs> you didn't or something? No, you didn't notice them. <laughs> I didn't notice the, the little... So I rewound it and, and watched it again, and I was like, oh, okay, I get it now. But, unless, like, it's the build-up. It's the sweaty, drunken mm-hmm. build-up to this punchline. And you can see Russell Crowe, like, spitting with laughter, trying to hold it in. Yes. Do you see those two weevils, Doctor? I do. 
Which would you choose? Neither. There's not a scrap of difference between them. They're the same species of Kerkulio. <clears throat> if you had to choose, if you were forced to make a choice, if there was no other response well, then, to... if you're going to push me... I would choose the right-hand weevil. It has significant advantage in both length and breadth. There, I have you. You're completely dished. Do you not know that in the service, one must always choose the lesser of two weevils? <laughs> <laughs> Keeklewood Pun would pick a pocket. <laughs> And then the laugh that it gets. I, I. One day I will tell a joke that gets a laugh as big as this. This is like <laughs> the best laugh I've ever heard a joke get. People are like belly roaring with laughter. It's amazing. And I like that Stephen is. He doesn't even like grin. He's he's just like. Oh, you you got one over on me, and I don't get your earth humor kind of he response. Makes, he makes some kind of remark under his breath that, like, it's a, a, something about a pun. Like, basically, oh, yeah. a, pun, a pun is beneath him, or it's, yeah. it's such an easy joke, but... Oh, god damn it! I love it so much. But the, the sneaky thing that they do, uh, just like so much of the rest of this movie, is... He's actually also really making a point. It's it's like this profound thing snuck into the joke, uh, and this is how he has to deal with it because he is the one who has to okay that they choose the lives of of everyone on the ship versus the life of one man, right? So it's you have to choose the lesser of two evils, and. You just kind of have to do it. You have to suck it up and go on with it. And that's what his life is. And he just has to accept it. I like it. It's kind of like how a surgeon has to have a sense of humor about things. Yeah. Yes. What is with the repeated images of the watch clock uh, and the tolling of the bell? Is there any kind of larger thing that you see coming from that? I... Honestly, I think that's just part of the historical accuracy. Okay. Is that everything on the ship was very methodical. The mm -hmm. watch times, the the meal times, unless you're beat to quarters, you know, where you're skipping meals or something right. like that. I think it's just it's it's the organization. When they talk about the ship log, the amount of detail, you have to write down everything in a ship log. Mm -hmm. You have to write down made sighting with the Acheron at 4.35 p.m. with a winds east-northeast. Uh, the detail, it's you have to have like minute by minute almost of the day on the ship. And so I think it's just emphasizing that, that organization of the English Navy. Well, and you get that in a larger sense for me when they... Uh, decide to change direction at different points um, in the story because you see there's been a few guys on deck then they they call for that and to change the sails and suddenly there's like 50 young guys running up the sides of the masts 
to to change the sails around. Yeah. And they all have a job. And once again, they all have a job. They all know what to do. And if the if the guy to your left isn't doing his job, you can't do yours and the whole ship is in danger. And there's something about that that's so good. These actors all did two weeks of intense sailing boot camp. Interesting. Okay. And Peter Weir sat down with the actors and basically was like, listen, if you can't do something or if you're not comfortable, then we'll put you somewhere else because we cannot have a single shot where somebody in the background doesn't know what they're doing because it will break it. And I love this movie so much because this... It's a fictitious movie, but it's also one of the most historically accurate things I've Mm -hmm. ever seen. And it's as close as we can get to a time machine right now to go back to the English Navy. Right. Unless you want to read a bunch of books, this this is the closest you can possibly get. I mean, they bought this ship. It was built in 1970. The ship that they got, they got the exact plans from the British admiralty so they bought one ship retrofitted it then built a second ship on a gimbal so they assembled an entire ship full size in a tank except for the bottom which was where all the hydraulics go and so then that way they have that ship 27 miles of rope is used to rig it they even went as far to do the detail of to make their own rope to twist it left hand lay which is more historically accurate, where modern rope is sold as a right-hand lay. Oh my gosh. Like, the, the level of detail. Yeah. Every single stove, hammock, pulley, all constructed in the span of under four months. What? They, did, they made all of this shit. Yeah, Peter Weir says that when he was recruiting actors, he had to tell them, like, there's really not much pay. Because we spin it all on the boat and it's going to be a hard shoot because you have to come to Mexico for a few weeks and we can't just shoot you in and out in a week because even if we're not shooting you, odds are you're going to be background in something else. And, you know, it's just it's an incredible amount of effort to do this. It was not necessary. I can't even begin to imagine the work that went into this. But the result is incredible, and it's something on a, on a level of production and spectacle that I've rarely seen in movies. So, Peter Weir, um, pretty much nothing but bangers in his filmography. You know, it's funny, I haven't seen a ton of his stuff. I saw Gallipoli when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. That Truman Show is good. Dead Poets is pretty good. Um, but that's it. I have not seen any of his other movies. Um, oh, Witness was okay. Mm-hmm. I, I'd like to check out more of his stuff, though. Uh, Fearless. I used to have the poster on my wall. I love that movie. Um, that was one of my favorites. The Cars That Ate Paris. I am amazed that that was him. <laughs> uh, because it's a very goofy almost trauma-esque kind of movie and picnic at hanging rock is like it's polar opposite it's this very meditative but that one reminded me of this in his observation of nature because in both movies like he shoots bugs and weather and wind 
as just their own separate elements and you can tell what's going on. And it's just like, you're just sitting there appreciating it for a second. Like whatever's happening, the fog or the, the, the birds, it's just, it's beautiful stuff that he shoots. That reminds me of like Terrence Malick, thin red line. What you Mm -hmm. just said there. Uh, So back on the boat, Hollum joins in with the seamen as they're singing a song and everybody stops. This is because officers should never fraternize like this with the sailors. The the officers eat in their own special quarters. Uh-huh. The sailor is not allowed back there unless specifically invited. So him jumping in to sing with the boys like this is completely out of place. And that's why everybody stops. I was wondering because I was like, is it because Jack showed up and like they're not supposed to be singing in front of him? Is it because he has a nice, pretty voice? Yes. Where everyone else is more sailor kind of singing. Right. I love, my God, what a face. The guy who has the circle removed from his skull and has hold fast on his knuckles. Yes. That guy's face is incredible. Like He was born to play an English sailor. Uh, also, it made me want to get hold fast tattooed across my knuckles. <laughs> I, I know. I hear you. <laughs> me too. Before I was like, ah, oh, that's dumb. <laughs> I'm not a sailor. I shouldn't get that. <laughs> so the Acheron is back on them again. It really made me laugh when Jack goes, uh, who is this guy? Did I kill a relative of his in the past? <laughs> Hopefully not a boy of his. When, uh, do they lose the mast? Oh, not yet. So okay. we got a little ways to go. That's oh, when Jack is up on the top sail with Pullings, the mm, officer. Mm-hmm. Fuck that shot where they're up a hundred feet above the ocean <laughs> and it's a helicopter shot. That just looks incredible to yeah. be there and to experience that feeling would be amazing. Uh, and then you see, like, yeah, go ahead. I don't like heights or the ocean. I think I would want to do that. I think I would want to stand up there just just for once just to have that yeah and i love that they race down the ropes and you see it like jack is a man of passion mm-hmm. he was born to be on a boat yes this is, this is what he was meant to do and it just shines through and like his his zeal for king and country but more for like his zeal for his men and just for the ocean shines through in everything he does when they first get attacked and he gives the little speech about, uh, no, the, the surprise is fine. She's better than, than that. She's in her prime. And he's lovingly touching where a cannonball has torn through part of the doorframe and splintered it. And he's like, oh. no, she's, she's great. Like, his, would you, his would you love. call me an aged man of war, Stephen? <laughs> Another fun thing. That's just leadership he does that whole knocking on wood turn three times for good luck with all the really young boys on the deck Uh, as they're going around the cape horn they're following this thing beyond brazil and now they're following it around and this storm hits and this is that storm is so intense and this is where the one guy's up on the mast screaming for help and Hollum again the jonah Mm -hmm. is climbing up and his fear consumes him, and he bear hugs the mast and doesn't keep climbing, and then the mast snaps. And 
What'd you think of this scene as this mast is getting dragged behind the boat as a sea anchor? Uh, it like pretty much as soon as it goes in, I knew what had to happen. I was thinking there was going to be some way that he could devise to save this guy, but you can't go into that water. The chop was way too rough. You can't like throw another, uh, a lifeboat in there uh, like they did earlier when they, when they tugged the, the boat behind them when it was damaged, it, like nobody else would survive. You'd just be, you'd be throwing more lives away to try to save that man. And if you don't cut him loose, you're sacrificing the whole ship. Like, it's it's a no win situation. It's like your classic trolley problem, right? Like, do you? Yeah, yeah. And he he loves his men, but he has to make the tough decision here, and he does. And that's that's what a leader has to do sometimes. And that song that plays as they start chopping is heartbreaking. And the fact that the one younger guy is clearly close with this guy who's mm-hmm. his friend helps to chop the ropes mm. and the cheer that rings out from the men yes. under the decks as the ship writes itself and they don't they don't know what they're cheering oh that hurts yeah that hurts and you see jack as steven consoles him it's like it's easier to lose people in battle but you have to remember he's a casualty of war also i think this conversation's interesting where they analyze if is Jack doing this out of duty or pride? Because right. he was only supposed to go as far as Brazil. So the fact that they're still pushing reeks of arrogance, as Stephen puts it. And they should they should have turned around right after the attack and gone back and gotten refitted rather than doing everything at sea. Uh, and he decided to push on and everyone was surprised at that point <laughs> that, that he kept pushing. Right. And here it's like he's just not letting go. So we're going to go to the Galapagos and the Acheron's probably after whaling ships over there. Jack promises Stephen he'll have time to go on land and check things out. I love when Jack eats the Acheron pudding, the the pudding ship, and he eats it whole. Uh, That's great. Um, Oh, uh, just there's some great music here with the Rally Rally Jack song mm-hmm. and then the song after it is just serene beauty um, uh, Blakeney and Martyrin or Matarin together are so sweet as he starts to take the amputated kids under his wing and train him as a naturalist and this kid is clearly like intelligent and has a curiosity for life and respect for science and it's like this kid is the combination of Jack and Steven and like the best of both of them, which I had not realized until just now. That's that was my note because uh, Jack gives him the book of uh, Lord Nelson's naval adventures and they talk about that and they bond over that. And then Steven uh, gives him the, the drawing supplies and this kid is really he's he's good. I mean, he draws better one-armed than I do two-armed. Uh, <laughs> I, but I'm always amazed at those naturalist drawings of animals out in the wild. And uh, the fact that he... Also, this theme that starts now of the camouflage. Like, mm. it's it starts in this little lesson um, when they're looking in the book. 
And then later it comes up again and again. And I really like that they're, they're using plot and character development at the, at the same time. It's, I think it's a really mature way to handle this stuff. It's such a hard thing to do to write mm-hmm. a screenplay where you're both pushing the plot and characters subtly at the same time without the audience even really being aware of it. Yeah, because it mostly feels like we're hanging out with these guys. Like yeah. this mostly is a vibes movie and like dudes, dudes rock kind of a movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, dudes rock these whalers that they pick up. These are some salty dogs, huh? <laughs> those are some tough men. Those are those guys. Oh, my God. Paddling around in the rowboat for a couple of days, probably waiting for rescue. And they talk about like how long it's been since they had food or fresh water. And once again, this life is not for me. <laughs> so with the information that the whalers give jack decides to abandon the plan to go to the galapagos and this is where steven panics and freaks out on him and i think steven's way out of line in this scene you cannot be yelling at a captain of a boat like this Uh uh-huh uh i wrote that what do you think i wrote that it was hard to watch uh, because yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to see my dad's fighting. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> I didn't like that. Um, yeah. But it does. Is this when it comes back with the boy brings him the Galapagos beetle? Yeah, I think. It's yeah, the, he and, cheers him up after this. Yes, it's the introduction a, of beetle. this beetle. Yeah. And this movie has the great little subtle things of like Stephen's so cold and hurt, and then as the boy is walking away. He he knows he has to thank this kid. Yes. Like, he has to show the gratitude. And this little gesture that this kid does really brings him around. Yeah, it's sad to see Jack. Jack looks really sad when he gets into a fight with his friend. We got cannon firing exercises after this, which is so cool. And I love Jack's speech here. Or it might be, oh, I think it's later when he talks about do you want do you want your kids to be singing La Marseille? Do you want to be oh yeah eating a croissant for breakfast or whatever? Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's speech. a little bit later, but yeah, that is great. Sleeping in a hammock can't be good for you, right? Or is it really good? It's one <laughs> or the other. <laughs> there's no middle ground. No, there's no. It's either like <laughs> your organs aren't supported and they're going to fall out or yeah. like it bends your back wrong or something or it cradles you like you're in the womb and it's the perfect <laughs> shape for your body. And I don't know which one it is. <laughs> I think you're right, man. Um, you got anything? Because my next note is the doldrums when the wind stops. I've got a lot uh, of their conversation kind of threads throughout this. The men are doing the, the drills, which I thought was that part was really cool. Like getting, fact, they, they were firing real cannons. Yes. For these shots. Oh, wait, what? They were actually firing. I mean, I don't know if they were loaded with shot, like yeah. a cannonball, but they were definitely using like explosive charges in these things. Uh, like somebody could have easily gotten hurt if they were out of position. Yeah. Um, oh, earlier when they were going to go, uh, like they pull up to the Galapagos, they, what is it? They trade with the locals a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. and then they head off. There's two moments 
I loved Steven's outfit when he shows up on deck. He gets all dressed up for nothing. Yes. And, oh, it that hurt. outfit is a his insect collecting outfit is adorable. Isn't yes, it? I would love to be able to rock an outfit like that. I mean, it looks like <laughs> upholstery or something, um, but then he's got the big scarfs and like the big floppy hat to protect him from the sun. Like it's very good. Um, and we also at that moment got uh, Aubrey. And one of the the native girls kind of make eyes at each other. And then Aubrey like takes a moment, finds himself and turns away from her. And it's like, it's like, no, his, uh, you know, his life is love and his lady is the sea. (laughs) Here's my read on that is um, we do see at one point he has like a letter to his wife. Mm -hmm. And so I think what that is, is just a small moment of him reflecting on when he was a young sailor, he would have been catcalling the native women and probably had some sex with some of them. And I think it's it's all like a reflection on that as he thinks about it. And then also knows that I'm a married captain now. I'm a master and commander. And so I, I can't that part that that side of me is done now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, then we get into the doldrums and one of the men. Um, disrespects Hollem, is that right? Yeah, and uh, it starts with a joke. It's like they start to laugh about the idea of having a Jonah on board, mm-hmm. but the joke starts to become serious as the wind is dead. And yeah, so they're walking by, and one guy lowers his shoulder into Hollem, and Hollem doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And it, I think this was probably Hollem's last chance to establish himself and to change his direction. But the fact that he didn't stand up for himself here, Jack has to be the one to step in and reprimand the man, reprimand the man. Reprimand the man. He has no leverage left with the crew. And this is before they discipline the man. Jack tries to talk to Hollum and give like tries to guide him. He tries to give him something to to work with and Hollum can't. Like whatever it is in him, he's not cut out to be in command. And you know what's interesting is Jack says, you can't be their friend. These men crave discipline. And yet Jack is so good of a leader that he is able to be a bit chummy mm-hmm. with the men from time to time and he has that deft touch where he knows when he can be soft and when he needs to be iron-fisted mm-hmm. and that's that that knowledge of when to act which way is the key to leadership yeah his and we see it especially later and then at the end where it's like friend and then yelling commands and then friend and then ultimately at the end there's some beautiful moments of like friendship that i thought were just once again give me the full body chills thinking about what how he acts towards his men yeah so steven has another conversation with jack they get heated again because steven wants him to stop the grog service because he thinks the men are getting drunk and acting out and jack's like 
prohibition will cause mutiny. Mm-hmm. And one, one thing that really made me laugh, there's two lines that I love that Jack says. One is, I hate it when you talk of the service this way. It makes me feel so very low. <laughs> and the other is, uh, you've come to the run. Fuck. You've come to the wrong shop for anarchy, brother. <laughs> That's, that was a very, like, Russell Crowe line yeah. right there. The- so, because uh, Steven's trying to get the, the flogging to stop. And Jack's, Jack's trying to tell him, like, this hierarchy is the heartbeat of the ship. Mm-hmm. If, if, we, if this man is not flogged, if disrespect from the crew towards the officers is allowed, everything goes to chaos and everyone will die. The It's still, it's hard to watch um, that man get whipped. And, like... My heart says Stephen is correct, but my brain says no, he's not, because you let that slide a little bit. You, you give him an inch, they're going to take a mile, kind of thing. It's, I, I, I totally understand, but it's especially after reading the terror. Mm-hmm. When the stakes are this high, insubordination cannot happen. It just, it just can't happen. The stakes are too high. Yeah. Death is too close around every corner to have an insurgency. So after this, when Hollum goes below deck after the flogging and all the men are sweaty and shirtless and every single one stands and salutes him and he's parting his way through the sea. Mm-hmm. This like sets my social anxiety on fire. <laughs> The whole time I was just this like, is like, this is the thing that you always imagine of like, oh, everyone hates me, but it's never true. But here it's true. Yes. And my thought the whole time was just, oh, he's he is fucked now. Like, I didn't know where he was going to end up, but I was not surprised, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, he believes he's cursed by the men. Steven looks at him, says he's physically fine. What did you think of the scene on the on the deck with him and Blakeney? I I did not like. <laughs> okay, there <laughs> are once again, um, and w- we talked a little bit about this. That I don't cry out of sadness a lot of times, right? It's like I get a lot of the happy tears and a lot of the just overwhelmed kind of feeling. Yeah, this brought me close to crying out of sadness, um, because this man is just he's broken like and it's the thing that he thought he was going to be he's he's not he cannot command and he doesn't that even line have, that jack says later of we don't always become the men that we envision ourselves as yeah <sighs> ouch ouch <laughs> it's so rough and to know that this poor boy has already been through so much well, he's the thing is, he's a 30-year-old man now, but right. he's still a midshipman, which tend to be like teenagers, or but, maybe people in their low 20s. The fact that he's failed lieutenant exam twice, it's like he keeps being held back in school, and now he's the oldest student in the class. But, um, uh, is it Blakeney? Is that the, the boy's name? The, 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 yeah, the boy. Yeah. yeah. The fact that he is the last one to see Hollum. That line of, you were always very kind to me. Yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. And, but it goes to show also what kind of person 
Blakeney is, right? And like what what a good leader he is going to grow up to be. That he he had more respect and has more respect than Hollem ever had <laughs> from from the men and Hollem in particular. Yeah, but also that he was the one that was not cruel. Yeah. That he had the the honor that there's a P word I'm thinking of that I can't put down, but that he had the presence of mind and the, the integrity to do that. Yeah. So that shot when he's sinking below the surface, that's pretty haunting, man. That's sinking into the void. Yeah. That's, um, there are things that, and suicide stuff doesn't always get me, but this one did. Like, it it hit. Yeah, you feel... You feel how... Inevitable this felt, and... Things just build and build to become worse for this guy, and... There's literally nowhere to run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh. When they're at his funeral, Killick hands the Bible to Jack, and it's open to the book of Jonah. That's a slap to the face, man. Yeah. And Jack's eulogy is surprising because as Stephen points out, Stephen's like, my God, you believe it too. Jack mm-hmm. believed that this guy was a Jonah. Right. And so the eulogy is essentially just like, we beg your forgiveness, but you were a Jonah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> we, did, we did what we had to, and... Mm. The fact that as soon as it's over, that the wind picks up. Mm. <sighs> Extra slap to the face, huh? Yep. That was rough. So our next, our next vignette. Um, see, I love this movie because you can just jump in or watch 20 minutes and you'll get a little short story uh-huh. of something that happens at sea. And then you move on. These don't even feel like scene to scenes to me sometimes. They feel like short story to short story. Yeah, I can totally see that. And the next one we're going to get is with Steven getting shot as the Marine is trying to shoot an albatross. Okay. Are you, are you annoyed with this Marine? I am so annoyed. Also, you, <laughs> you don't kill an albatross, right? Isn't I believe that's very bad luck on a boat. Yes. yes. Okay. So he, uh, shouldn't have been, he shouldn't have done been doing that in the first place. Secondly, uh, have some trigger discipline, man. Like... <laughs> That's Dick Dick Cheney out here. Yeah. Uh, you never want your surgeon to say, I just need to study some pictures before and then we'll be good. <laughs> um, <laughs> this made me think of uh, the Nick. Uh, we've talked about it. I've never seen it. Yes. Um, I mean, turn of the century surgery. Uh, someone does self-surgery at one point. With a mirror, very similar kind of stuff. Uh, and the whole time, I always feel like you're just covered in germs. Like, there's nothing sterile about any of this. <laughs> um, uh, so the, the surgeon's gasp when he opens the book, and it's the, the picture of the human anatomy. Uh-huh. <laughs> he gasps. <laughs> just That's a really funny little moment. Uh, again, Jack knows when to make a tough call as a leader, and it's to abandon his pursuit of the Acheron, because not only is he saving his friend, 
but he's saving possibly the best surgeon in the entire Navy. Mm -hmm. And so saving this one man could potentially save the live lives of dozens of his men in the future. And it's the same arithmetic that he did earlier. Like, you know, you, you cut off the one man to save many. And here it's, you cut off your pursuit to save countless people. Right. It's that shot when he looks at his friend's oboe or whatever Stephen plays and is just leaning against the chair. Yeah. The cello. It's very sad. Jack sitting there thinking of losing his friend. Yeah. (laughs) It's rough. (laughs) I I love the shot. As you said before, when you talked about two characters in the foreground and then one in the back middle, that's exactly how this shot's composed here as they do the surgery. You got Jack on the right, surgeon on the left, mirror guy in the back middle, and then Steven's head in the foreground. Mm -hmm. And so I love I love the composition of these two shots where you get to see some of the gory stuff in the mirror. And then again, Weir takes us to a, full, a extreme close-up of Steven's face. And Paul Bettany here, acting his ass off. <laughs> this is some incredible face acting, especially oh, when he asks for his ribs to be lifted. Mm. And, he, and he gasps. Oh. It's very and Jack. Jack looks away. Jack yes. is like so smug, like I've been around wounds, and Jack is sweating, and Jack can't even look. Yeah, that's the part where I was like, uh, I don't, I don't think that I could. Once again, this life is not for me. I'm glad that I live in a world where I don't have to see my best buddy, my mate, uh, do surgery on himself. I couldn't. I know, and the idea that not only is the bullet scary, but the real danger is the the shirt that was taken with the bullet. Yes, that oh, and that, it's moment, separate. that moment yeah. when the guy puts the patch on the shirt. He says he'll patch she'll patch up nicely, sir. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just like uh, it's relief, it's heart feeling, it's uh, it feels so good. Yeah. Did you notice them decanting cactus water outside of the tent on the Galapagos shore? Oh, yeah, yeah. That was so cool. They're drinking cactus water. Awesome. So, uh, in my uh, Cochinita Pabil that I made last week, it calls for tequila, but since we don't drink, we I'll cook with alcohol occasionally, but I didn't want to buy a whole bottle of tequila. I'll buy a, like a box of wine or a bottle of wine to to make a, a sauce or whatever. But yeah, I'm not like having a whole thing of tequila here for, you know, two tablespoons. Yes. What I got was cactus and I used the cactus juice instead of the tequila because it's supposed to have a similar flavor profile. How did that work out? Very well. Nice. Six, six pounds of uh, six pounds of pork got eaten. Oh, this was for Elizabeth's birthday. Yes. Nice. Yeah. That looked awesome. Um, fuck. Jack saying, name a shrub after me. Something prickly and hard to eradicate. Yeah. If that's not, like, <laughs> just the perfect embodiment of this guy, I love it. Uh, Steven gets, like, a week to hang out on the shore, so he goes off with Blakeney and this other guy, and he's desperate to get a comorant, the bird, but he finds the Acheron instead, and 
that part where he has to leave the pile of cages open uh-huh. and there's just like eight different species of animals climbing out of this pile of cages i just oh this poor guy this poor guy he's he's so close and yet so far yeah because his his assistant can't carry the cages because he has to carry him <laughs> and that was like oh geez but he does he makes the decision he knows what he has to do how adorable is Blakeney also in his little bug catching outfit here? Oh, yeah. Like, I once again, I want an adventure book with just the two of these guys. Like, I, I think these two would make for a great book. Yeah. Honestly. I'm curious to see if Blakeney's actually going to show up um, in the books as I'm reading them. Because a lot of this stuff is from the first, uh, the first book. Mm-hmm. Like the the line about the zeal for country, king and country. Um, the part earlier, I think we we skipped by it, but where they make the fake ship to tow behind. Oh yeah. Oh, isn't that fucking? That rad? was so cool. That part, uh, and he sends the. Um, I think I, it's I think it's Pullings the the young kid. Pullings, yes, out there, and then when he comes back, he's like, "Don't tell me that wasn't fun." <laughs> I liked that part. Yeah. Or no, Pullings is Pullings is a different guy. Oh, that okay. kid, yeah, that kid's named Peter something. Um, uh, yeah, oh, adventure, adventure, Josh. <laughs> Can you imagine being towed behind a gigantic sailboat in the middle of the night, only a rope keeping you attached to civilization? And ah, so earlier when you were like, oh, the the upper classes send their sons to do this and to rise through the ranks. You know what immediately came to mind? What? Cabin boy. <laughs> These pipes are clean. <laughs> yes. I, like, I don't I don't remember much from Cabin Boy. I've only seen it once, but, but I remember Letterman being in it. That's his whole thing, is he thinks he's gonna be on a fancy ship and then he's uh just, you know, the cabin boy. No, oh, the- stick insect time. We're gonna Blakeney and Steven are going to talk to Jack and show him the stick insect. Mm. And this is finally where, like, Steven's naturalism and Jack's naval genius finally combine to create one, one amazing sailor. And they... It's so cool how they paint the boat and cover it and cover up their masked woman and... You know, even how he talks about how Run the sails sloppily. Let the wind spill out of them. Basically, pretend like you're shitty sailors. So that way, and you know, in the books, they talk about the sailors when they look at a ship. You, they can, they know these sailboats so intimately that you can spot a good crew or a bad one based on how quick they get their sails up, or the way that the wind is hitting the sails, or the efficiency of things, the Mm -hmm. rigging, how clean is it? All of these things are noticeable by every sailor. And so to disguise your boat like this yeah. is amazing. So the, the sneak attack where they're, they're going to pretend it to be a whaling ship. Um, mm. How about that speech? The greed will be their downfall because they won't want to damage us because we're worth more. We're on the far side of the world. This ship is home. This ship, ship is, is England. England. Yes. Hell yeah. Oh, Dude, when the boat pulls up 
and the French guy's yelling on the horn. And then my note is just all capitals, let fly, exclamation point. <laughs> when that happens, and the music kicks in, uh-huh. and the cannon doors open up, and they're barraging, and they're fucking hitting that mast again and again and again. Yes. Oh my god, I like full body chills of just, this is the pinnacle of like exciting movie shit. Ah, it's so good. And you see, once again, uh, like this scene itself is chaotic and confusing. But the fact that earlier we saw them doing those drills and pulling out the the chocks underneath the the back of the cannon so that they'd be tilted up because they're going to be close enough that they need that angle to hit the mast. And we they explained that to us so that we would know what was happening when everything kicks off was like, oh, shit. OK, now I appreciate everything that's happening. And earlier, Jack mentions they're vulnerable through the stern, just as we are. Mm -hmm. And by taking out the mast, he then pulls around behind the ship and launches a full broadside through her stern. Fuck yeah. (laughs) And just the the sound design again is insane. This is like the biggest thing in the world I've ever listened to. (laughs) And the fact that Jack uh, has this... um, uh, appreciation for this boat like he's going to attack it and if he had to he would sink it but he's got this appreciation from the model that those boys built him so that he's you know like that's just how he is like you said he's made for the sea like he is in awe of this thing as well there's also the idea with uh i believe it's privateers as this boat is and not always the case, but oftentimes, Captain captures it, it becomes his boat. Mm-hmm. So, Jack's also looking for an upgrade here. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the surprise so isn't we're gonna, we're gonna We're gonna board now. What do you think of this quiet before the storm moment as they board the ship? Uh, it, I mean, it felt like I was waiting for them to to do what they do although it's almost like a zombie attack right like yeah they're they're all dead and then they spring up and it's and they all come running out yeah it's horrifying uh i also uh, this is another thread between both these movies the violence in them feels substantial Every time someone gets stabbed, slashed, shot, whatever it is, it feels visceral. And whether it's friend or foe, it feels like every one of these deaths matters. Like, you get the idea that they were somebody because of the amount of time that we see with them. Yeah, that guy who gets shot in the head very first thing. Mm -hmm. He's been one of our, like, top dog. Yeah. He's like the sail master or something like that. A very important guy. And you can tell he's like an old friend of Jack's when they talk at the dinner table mm-hmm. and stuff. These deaths have weight. The other thing that has weight is the giant wooden mallet that the one guy is swinging in the battle. Everyone has swords. And then you see the one guy with the mallet that they used to plug holes in the ship. And he's swinging it at a French guy. The fighting is brutal, though. It's, it's yeah. dirty and visceral. and. That moment, we can finally talk about 
when they when Polings goes, Blakeney, get on the nine pounder. Yes. And this kid jumps on the cannon, and then they're going cannon to cannon, and he has to save the ship from being sunk to the point where he leads the charge. And he's the one like, follow me! And he's fucking running onto the boat and shoots a guy at the... It's just like, fuck yeah, dude! (laughs) Fuck yeah, I love this kid so much! That's... uh, I wrote, I want to read the books now just to find out if Blakeney, what he goes on to do. Like, is he there? Do we get to meet him? (laughs) I I want more of this kid. We get them dousing the cannons with water. One guy, this the... Other surgeon blocks the trigger of one cannon with his hand. Mm-hmm. Funny little tiny moment. Steven at one point gets bombarded by French guys and Jack rushes to defend his friend. Um, yeah, I love the kid releasing the whalers down at the bottom of the mm-hmm. ship in the hold. And that kid turns the tide. And that, that gets that kid killed, sadly. Yes. That's Peter... And so he succeeds and helps them, but dies in the process. His death is probably the hardest hitting in the movie. And he's the one that, um, when Blakeney was first injured, and he asked him about putting, do they really put a stitch through your nose when they're stitching up your, uh, the cloak that they, they put you in the ocean in? Yeah. That's, and so. for that to come full circle... In not the way that I expected, but in a very satisfying way, uh, like storytelling wise and hit you emotionally like that was really effective, I thought. As the battle winds down, Jack goes into the captain's quarters and I like the little touch. We see the captain has a horn or maybe that was his record, his gramophone. I think it was a horn. we, We saw sheet music. Yeah. Which I really liked that touch of. Jack is hunting Jack. Yeah. Jack is, his respect for this man is, his fascination, his respect for this man is very high. Mm-hmm. Like he, he's desperate to know who this man is, who is essentially his equal. The uh, fact that it kind of, it humanizes them as well. Like, They've only been these shadowy figures that we see from a distance, and then once once they let fly, you only see it like everyone is chaotic and moving. It's funny because the most human they are is when they're not on screen, and you see like, oh, they have a quarters just like we do. They eat their meals in here, they play music in here, and it's just kind of this soft little moment until that guy jumps out of that the overturned table or whatever he's under and tries to stab him in the gut. (laughs) That guy is comically French. Yes. Yes, he is. (laughs) When you see a cartoon of a French person, that's what they look like. I almost expected him to go, ha 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 ha. When he, when he stabbed him. Um, so Jack makes his way into the, the hospital and finds out that the captain has died. And has left his sword for him. And again, you feel the disappointment of Jack just like, ah, I wanted to talk to this guy. <laughs> I wanted to see what makes him tick. Um, so we're back up on the deck. Polings gets the promotion. If this doesn't make your heart warm. Oh, my God. Does? That one that got me like 
because and it seems like he's not expecting it. Yeah. Yeah. And he, you know, he's been with Jack. Jack mentions that he saw him like as a boy. So presumably he's been with Jack for I don't know, 20 years or something at this point and gets his promotion now. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Uh and then I, I, this ending <laughs> is so fucking perfect because Jack goes down and says the French captain died. I met the doctor. He gave me his sword. Stephen uh-huh. says their doctor died months ago. Yeah. And Jack's like, huh. Well, we better go support the Acheron now because they have a French captain who's very wily on board and who knows what's going to happen. And we end with this music. What did you think when they, the two of these guys start to play this? Oh my God. It's like... There's something about the the adventure of it, even though like several of our friends have died, we've lost them along the way due to the battle, due to the the curse, due to the mast going overboard. All these terrible things have happened, but it puts you in mind of just the adventure itself and that these guys are headed back to it. And this is what they're made for. And there's nothing else they can do, right? Like he promises that they're going to go to the Galapagos and you get the, the chef kiss of a final line from Russell Crowe of, uh, they're going to go back to the Galapagos and then they can't. And Steven is disappointed. And Russell Crowe goes, well, the cormorant is a flightless bird, right? It'll still be there. It makes me swell. I'm so happy you said adventure because in like an oddly emotional way, it's like this adventure, the note that this movie ends on, the story will never end. These guys will live on forever in this fictitious world, having these adventures and through these books. And Mm -hmm. so for me to watch this movie, it's not only like a time period piece, but it's like, it's a comfort for me in some way that like somewhere the adventure goes on mm-hmm. even if you don't really believe in it like th- i think also the fact that these guys are fictitious characters just the the adventure goes on and we'll live another day and we'll tell another story and life is beautiful and exciting and wonderful and go explore and it just it hits my heart in like a million different ways and it like kind of like confronts some of like my depression i think mm-hmm. of I, I it's really hard for me to convey in words how this ending feels except it's just that feeling of the story goes on and everything is going to be all right so my note at the end uh was that both of these films frame these massive battles that they have as just one event along a much longer timeline that stretches out before and beyond the movie we're seeing. Um, neither one of them have like the well, monsters dead movies over trope. Neither one of them do that. They both linger after the battle and let you know that something that life is going on extending beyond the edges of the of the frames of the film and there's something about that that's very palpable that both the dead are truly dead but the living get to keep on living and i think that that part is really powerful 
in both of these films. Like technically they've they're on the losing end again, that the Acheron got the better of them and they've got to go save their men who they put on board that boat now, but they're going to do it by God. And I don't think that Jack is counting those men dead or lost. He's like, shit, we're going to go get them. We're going to go and we're going to get that boat back. We're going to get it into Harbor. Like we're, you know, we're going to get it refitted and everything. Like it's just another, another step in these guys journey. Um, much like in the samurai, it's another step in their journey. Unfortunately, the samurai are on the losing end all the time, but the townspeople get to have their beautiful village back and are clearly happy about it. So I like both of these endings. I think they're really strong that way. This is one of my favorite endings of all time. Mm-hmm. I, it just, it just when a movie goes black right where you want it to and the music that's playing is just what you want it to be. And you walk out of the room with the exact feeling in your heart that you want to have. Like that's, that's everything that master and commander is for me. Mm-hmm. What would you rate this movie now? Having seen it, I'm so happy you have. Um, I think I, because we due to, to your request, <laughs> we have stopped rating them before we talk. Um, yeah, unless like seven samurai. I, I went ahead and rated it because you know you know how I feel about this yes. movie. <laughs> yes. Um, I can't really fault this film. So on my, I give it a heart because I thought it was great. On the star rating, which is my ranking of if I'm going to watch it again, I don't know that it gets a full five, but I'm going to go. It's four, four and a half. It is up there. Yeah, yeah. That's that's completely reasonable. It sounds kind of similar to how I felt about Seven Samurai. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, but the time that you spend with these guys, the thing is, I want this to be I don't know if it's a series of movies or a TV series or what, but I want more of this. I want more of those like we're on the ship vibes, even when they're in the doldrums. It was fascinating stuff. I don't know if you could recapture this. No. Like, it's one of those movies where I'm afraid of a sequel happening, honestly. Yeah, I don't... I mean, I think there's something about the the actors and the time and the... I don't know how sparse the use of CGI actually was. There's a few times when it's fairly obvious. Um, yeah. But it's... Those are very minor, and it was very tasteful. It was the kind of thing where it's like not overblown in that arena. And I mean, 2003 was an easy time to, I feel like, go overboard, no pun intended, in using CGI for this kind of stuff uh, that wasn't quite up to the task. And I feel like they did a great job of massaging it into the rest of the footage here. I agree. Good. Good. What do you what do you rate it? What what's your ranking? Uh this this may be my favorite movie I've ever seen. Okay. 5 out of 5. I watched this I watched this a week and a half ago and I just watched <laughs> it again this morning uh-huh. and was completely captivated. And I pick up different things. Like I th- I feel like now I've picked up on every little minor point mm-hmm. in the movie. 
But like a lot of the details of Hollum's story, first couple watches, I wasn't quite connecting all those dots that right. I did now. This is it's just for everything I've described. I don't want to say I'll repeat all my points again. I think I've said everything I can. So it it it's a five star magic movie that just speaks directly to my soul. Um, speaking of rewatching things, when I first got the Seven Samurai. Uh, the Criterion set, I did watch all of the um, commentaries. Like, I watched the movie, and then the commentary, and then the commentary, because I think there's two on the set. Uh, There's also two on the Criterion channel streaming service. So, they have both of those. They have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar talking about the movie. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's the the weirdest thing. and then uh, an interview with Kurosawa and a couple other things that all good background information uh, about the movie. If anybody wants to dig deeper into it. Awesome. Um, next episode, we're going to have a guest on. We're going to be talking about Wayne's world. And I don't think we're a hundred percent on our second movie. Are we? No, we're not. I thought we were. And then there's some an interesting wrinkle came up. So it's uh, yet to be told. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we'll post it on the Discord. And then, like we said, I think after that is Thief and Drive. And Drive. <laughs> Not 100% on that. Um, Josh, you got anything else this week? I do not. I've got uh, a hunger in my belly that I think I'm going to fill some tacos. That's what I've got. Beautiful. Well... I have nothing but bang in my system and it's starting to wear off. So we better get out of here. So for both of us at Nashville CA, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I hope your winter is coming to an end here and you're excited about spring. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful week, two weeks. I hope you're kind to yourself. I hope you're kind to your neighbors. Take care, everybody. We'll see you soon. Bye.